Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. And just like that, we're back with Fight Night Picks getting set for UFC Fight Night. Lewis versus Spivak, as always, one half of your host and duo, Craig Allen. Twitter and Instagram, at Craig Allen FNP. With me to my left, to your right, respective socials. Matt Allen FNP and Matt the folks you can see it there on the screen if you're listening to the audio podcast make sure you check out the road to the UFC it's the fighting handbook with fight night picks and the reason being you have the tournament finals of the road to the UFC on this prelim card and it's just one of those cards that was kind of put together in a bit of an odd type of circumstance I mean it was originally supposed to be the guy, the Korean zombie in the main event. The show was supposed to be from Seoul, South Korea. And it was announced in December that all of a sudden, kind of hush-hush, the card was going to move from South Korea over to Vegas. And that's the reason why this card is going to be taking place. The prelims starting at 10 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. The main card kicking off roughly 1 a.m. Eastern. So a very, very odd set of circumstances there. Only three American fighters on this card. You have seven South Korean fighters on this one. You have plenty of Japanese fighters as well. And again, Road to UFC very much centered around Asian MMA. But if you look at this one, Matt, the rebooking of the main event at Heavyweight, it was supposed to take place back in November between Lewis and Spivak. Lewis had some issues after the weigh-in, so the fight was scrapped. But ultimately, we get it now. You go to social media, Derek Lewis looking absolutely trim. This is a very interesting card. I know some people might be down on it a little bit, but there are definitely some positives to look forward coming up this weekend. This card feels like it has five fights that could all kind of be a co-main event on a fight night card. I know right now we have Dong Jung versus Devin Clark, which is a pretty fun fight, but even look one fight earlier than that. Like, Marcin Nabor versus Blagoy Ivanov, that's a pretty fun fight in the heavyweight division. And speaking of our main event, I think Derek Lewis, Lewis versus Sergei Spivak is one of those weird fights that kind of has to happen. And I only say that because Derek Lewis has fought everybody in the top 15 at this point, but there's a couple names out there that are exempt from that list, and Sergei Spivak is one of those guys. And for Spivak, He's one of those prospects, if you will, that's had a lot of opportunities against some of the top levels of the organization, but he's never really been able to break through and become really that dominant fighter that I think a lot of people believe that he can become. But if he beats Derek Lewis, only great things happen to you after that point. We talk about that a lot with a lot of different fighters in a lot of different divisions. Derek Lewis still has that star potential. It just so happens to see, is he still that star? Is he still that talented fighter? Because he hasn't been on the greatest of run as of late. Lewis in his 10th UFC main event. Two of those were pay-per-view main events when he fought Daniel Cormier and Stittle Gone. Both of those for the title. Really looking forward to it. Make sure you check out our fight of the night screen. Comment down below. 12 total fights on this card right now. You're not wrong till Saturday night. Let's throw it on over to the fight of the night screen. Let us know down below in the comment section who you've got. It's time for the fight of the night with Fight Night Picks. And it is the return of the Korean Superboy, Duho Choi, taking on Canada's The Monster, Kyle Nelson. And for Kyle Nelson, 1-4 in the UFC since he made his short-notice debut against Diego Fajeda way back when at UFC 231. For Duho Choi... He hasn't won a fight since 2016, and he's had a litany of injuries. I'll talk about all of them once we get to that preview and prediction. But in this matchup, Matt, Duho Choi, his last three fights against, oh boy, Cub Swanson, UFC Hall of Fame fight, against Jeremy Stevens, against Charles Jordan, 
All three of those fight of the nights. These two guys love to stand and bang. And from the Kyle Nelson interviews that I went back and watched, he wants to test Duho Choice striking. So I think this is going to be a great fight while it lasts. It should be a phenomenal fight. It's wild that these two men find themselves occupying a very similar spot in the division now because Duho Choi was the hotness at one point. And while, yes, he may not have always beat the top-level guys, he was putting great fights on with them. I mean, everybody's going to remember the fight he had against Cub Swanson, one of the all-time great MMA fights, one of the best fights in featherweight history. So it should be interesting to see how he does deal with Kyle Nelson because if Duho Choi is still the guy that he used to be, which is a huge question mark like you bring up, then he should be able to beat a guy like Kyle Nelson. But like you said, it's been injuries. It's been the time off. We don't really know what version of the Korean Superboy we're going to get, but I'm pretty sure he's still going to be that entertaining fighter. It's a really, really tricky fight. And our second pick, Matt, Jin Young Park taking on Dennis Tolulin. And for Tolulin, he was 10-5 coming into the UFC. He's kind of not deep, but deep into his 30s. And he fights like a rock'em, sock'em robot. And he's taking on Jin Young Park, a guy who can sometimes let his striking offense give away his striking defense and gets into some of those brawls. He saw his fight against Gregory Rodriguez, one of those two-round type of fight of the nights. I absolutely love this fight. And again... As long as this one lasts, it should be a lot of fun. It should be a phenomenal fight, but this is one that you worry about once it gets into the third round. We might get some sloppy MMA by the time that time comes around, but it's going to be phenomenal up until that point. Park has some sneaky wrestling he'll bring out every now and then, but he loves to get into a brawl. And that's not necessarily the game plan you want to be in when you're fighting a guy like Tallulah. He has fight-ending power from the jump of the fight. I think this is going to be a really fun one. It's weird, though, because the stakes of this probably aren't that high, even though it is going to be a really fun fight. The winner gets what? Like Gerald Mearshart? Maybe? Like, that's the weird thing about this matchup, but it's going to be a phenomenal fight. Big time fights. Again, 12 of them total. Four of these fights are going to be on the Road to UFC tournament. Make sure you let us know down below who you have in the fight of the night. So, four fights, Road to UFC, Flyweight, Bantamweight, Featherweight, and Lightweight, and a lot of fun. We're definitely going to cover those. I mean, those eight men made it into the poster for this week, but if you consider it, we also have two other debuts into the UFC. You have Japan's Yusaku Kinoshita taking on Adam Fuget, that one at welterweight. So that should be a really, really fun fight. Kinoshita is definitely one of those guys, like, if you know, you know. And then to kick off the card, Tatsuro Taira is taking on the debuting Dana White's Contender Series vet in Jesus Aguilar, a guy who represented UWC, won a flyweight belt over there, and he also had a combate main event before he featured on Contender Series this past summer and picked up a big win in the third round by finish. But Matt, again... Very much a, a, an oddball type of card just because it's on so late. The three Americans on this card, Derek Lewis, Devin Clark, and Adam Fugat, as I mentioned earlier. And it's one of those ones that, again, people might be down on it, but there's definitely some diamonds in the rough. And usually we call these ones like Fight Night Pick Specials. Look at it this way. You basically get the equivalent of three, alt or four, sorry, Ultimate Fighter finales. And it's a Derek Lewis main event. If I break it down to you like that, you're probably pretty fired up about this Saturday. So I know the card starts a little late, so there's no better way to get it ready for it than with us. Make sure you check out the Fight Night Picks Fighting Handbook. You open it to page one and look at that. We got the road to UFC. It's here in the channel. It's down below in the description. I'll have a title card there and everything but a really cool look inside the tournament that we threw out there and matt it is a big time card okay. we have a lot to talk about you're gonna want to keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. a couple of flyweight prospects looking to move the chains get one step closer to the ultimate proving ground we have japan's tatsuro taira taking on the debuting fighter out of mexico 
It's Jesus Aguilar. Matt, every time I see a man named Jesus, I think of, well, Jesus or Jesus Quintana from the Big Lebowski just licking that I was going to say basketball. I'll never do that again. The bowling ball. Well, it's kind of like the OSP. But, Matt, when it does come down to this matchup for Aguilar, coming off Dana White's Contender Series this past summer, he picked up a big-time win over Ederson Fajeda, another guy that had recently fought on Dana White's Contender Series the season before. They didn't pick him up, so he got a second shot. And for Fajeda, his first time on Contender Series kind of struggled with the weight. His second time on Contender Series, they made him weigh in twice because he missed weight the first time. And in that fight, Fajeda looked all right in the first round, but Aguilar really was able to pull away round two, round three, ends up getting the submission win there. And Dana White pretty well credited Aguilar's stick-to-itiveness, his cardio, and the fact that he was one tough SOB having no knockouts in the entirety of his career, but going in and throwing hammers to close the distance and taking on the much bigger Fajeda in the matchup. And if you notice anything about Aguilar, you'll see we have him listed as 5'4". There's other sites before he went on Dana White's Contender Series, it was 5'3". But he's really at a size disadvantage compared to a lot of guys that you're going to find in this flyweight division. Chief among them, a guy like Tatsuro Taeda, who's very, very long, rangy for this division. But for Aguilar, again, this is a guy that's going to paw his left hand out there. He's going to close a lot of distance very quickly. Daniel Cormier, even in that contender series fight, said, man, this guy's barrel-chested. I like the barrel-chested guys. They're able to get in there. They're hard to get off of you. And once they try and drag you down, it can be a very, very tough night. So Aguilar is one of those guys you have to watch out for. And the thing that I really like is he's never abandoned the style that got him to the dance. If you go back, he was a UWC flyweight champ. He was a champ over with, or sorry, he, he competed in a main event over with Combate Global, the big organization that you know in Latin America. For Aguilar, I mean, the highs are highs. The lows can be lows when you're trying to close distance that way. But again, he lost a fight very early on his pro debut, and he's won eight straight. He is one of those prospects that... I don't really know how to project the ceiling, but he is a very interesting guy to watch. And that's why it's weird that they're giving him to another prospect as his UFC debut. Like, Tatsulo, if he was up a division, he'd be fighting like Dominic Cruz. And I know that's not a perfect copy. After the idea. two UFC no, 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 fights? But I, I don't mean Dominic Cruz exactly. Let me explain myself a little bit better. Just a legend who's on his way out. Dominic Cruz is the first guy who came to mind. But you get the idea. A more established fighter who's not necessarily in Brian their Kelleher. And there you go. Brian Kelleher is a great example. Just a guy who exactly in his prime may have not been the biggest deal but people have much or a lot of respect for that person but you still don't think they'd beat the prospect Tatsulo's been really impressive in his UFC tenure up until this point he he has shown the wrestling that he showed outside the UFC that we weren't necessarily sure if it was going to be able to transition over because it isn't you it isn't the classic like single leg double leg he'll go for it but he loves the upper body trips he's a great in the clinch grappler and those are things you like to see but this matchup for me is interesting because you wouldn't give a prospect a fight like this from Tatsulo's point of view. It's, hey Tatsulo, if you do your game plan, you're probably going to win this fight. But you got to be perfect and not get lackadaisical for any of the 15 minutes in this matchup. Because let's say he does put his head in a bad position going for a takedown. He does start to tire himself out just trying to hold Jesus Aguilar on the mat. That's when he could find himself getting fatigued as the fights go late. And the thing about Jesus is, he is like a dog on a bone with his submissions. Once he gets a hold of them, there's not a lot of wiggle room. There's not a lot of readjustments. He just likes to crank on it. And he does seem to have that kind of one-of-one squeeze, if you will. And I could see that being a position that Tatsuo could uh, at least have some troubles with. The problem is he's just looked so good in his UFC tenure up until this 26-year-old just has to crank on it. Man's got to go T. That's got to be an odd decision when you're in your early 20s. You go, you know what? 
I want to look like a stepdad. That's my look. That's what I'm going to go with. Maybe but that's his game. For Jesus Aguilar, you talk about his submissions. He has one. I mean, if you go down through it, he has eight wins, six by submission, five by guillotine. He absolutely loves that choke. And the nice thing that I like out of Aguilar's game is the fact that if he gets himself on a bottom position, he can sweep out of it fairly easily. And he very much is uh, a traditional freestyle type of wrestler where he's going across the cage, he's shooting single, he's shooting double. Sometimes those entries can be from very long range. So for a short guy getting his arms out there, he could get himself caught. But for Taita, you're very much right. I mean, you look at this guy, the former Shuto Flyweight champ, he had his amateur debut when he was 16 years old. And that's something wow. that's going to be very similar when we go through some of these fighters that are out of Japan on this card. Four Japanese fighters on the card. Yusaku Kinoshita, another guy that started his amateur career at 16. But for Taita, he was able to win the belt there. He's fighting between divisions, whether it's strawweight, flyweight, or bantamweight. And he comes into the UFC and he takes on a level of competition. I mean, you look at it for Taita, he's already 2-0 in the UFC. He fought Carlos Candelario. He was able to drop him in that fight. He got in a bad position at the end of what? Round one. But then after that, it was smooth sailing. And then his last time out, he takes on CJ Vergara and in that fight I mean wow like he had a good flow to his striking one of the things that I was really kind of bullish on with Taita making the UFC debut being so young was the fact that sometimes he could pull back with no counter or he just try and block punches with his arms but his striking's definitely come along a lot way from when he was fighting at that upper echelon main event type of status with Shuto to coming into the UFC keeps his hands a lot closer to the vest closer to his head he has good flow with the striking it's not a lot of single shots and his leg kicks are deadly especially from distance and he's one of those guys that he can whip it to all three different levels but it's not coming at you from that sidewinder type of stance he can throw front kicks up the middle he can throw teeps to the body so i really do like that out of him the good thing for taita as well three inches of uh height seven and a half inch reach advantage over Aguilar and that's one of those stats that some people don't usually use their reach advantage or they don't utilize the height advantage and Taita can get backed up because like you said he likes to utilize the clinch he likes to utilize body throws and trip takedowns but in a matchup like this Matt and I mean this with all due respect is Jesus Aguilar better than CJ Vergara? I don't really think so. Like, and the other thing too about Tatsuo is he's going to continue to get better. Like he is 23 years old. Like you mentioned with his striking, that was the one component that was kind of lagging behind his grappling. You were wondering, hey, is it going to catch up? But so far, so good. Like he has shown those improvements and the footwork does work to his benefit with the grappling and with the striking. And I like how he's been able to pair those two things together. But I do agree with you. It's not that I discount Aguilar as a UFC fighter. I think he could go on and still have a successful career. It's just he's probably fighting the brightest prospect in the division right now, or at least one of the many bright prospects. I guess Flyweight has a number of very, very high-level ones, but I just think a lot of Tatsuo and what he's been able to demonstrate in the UFC up until this point. Taito's been around a minus 300 in both of his UFC fights against Condelario, against CJ Vergara. In this matchup, for what it's worth, he opened at a minus 800. He's a minus 1150 favorite. Jesus Aguilar opened plus 500, plus 710. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us, they are to you. With a favorite that big, I'm going to say over under 95% Tatsuro Taita. I'll say over. You're going to say over. It's right on the nose. 1,012 total votes. 95% Taita. 69% by submission for the 5% that have Aguilar. 43% by decision. 35% by submission. So Matt, again, I, like with CJ Vergara, he's a good wrestler. I think he's a better striker than Jesus Aguilar. He kind of flows with the striking out of Pete Spratt Muay Thai. 
But when I do look at this matchup, Matt, for the gains that I've seen out of Taeda from the limited glimpses that he's had training in the States at Extreme Couture and not close to home out of Okinawa and Naha City... I do like the advancements out of Taeda. I think those long-range strikes are really good. I like the knees from the clinch, and I do like his wrestling game in a matchup like this where both guys are good at scrambling. He obviously has to watch out for his neck 100%. on those guillotine attempts and, and gator rolls from Aguilar, but I do like Taeda. The only weird thing about this fight is, why isn't Tatsugo fighting on the main card? I felt like by now they would try to push the prospect a little bit more, and especially the fact he is such a big favorite. I can understand trying to, maybe the term hide a prospect on the prelims in a close fight. That makes a little bit more sense to me, but Tatsugo's a big favorite. You have been obviously trying to push him a little bit up until this point. He's a 23-year-old borderline phenom, so I, I do happen to win this fight, but I did expect him to fight a little bit higher up on the card, I must say. Both of us picking the number 20 ranked topology flyweight Tatsuro Taira to beat the number 66 ranked Jesus Aguilar. Matt, we have a big time card coming up this weekend. Four total Japanese fighters, the lone Mexican fighter and Aguilar on the card. Headlined by Lewis versus Spivak. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Top 30 middleweights look out. We have South Korea's the Iron Turtle, Jun Young Park, looking to make it three wins in a row when he takes on Dennis Tolulin coming up this weekend. And for Dennis Tolulin, if you look at it, coming into the UFC, we didn't really have the nicest things we to did. say about him necessarily. I mean, I look at Dennis Tolulin, it's almost like watching a kid playing Rock'em Sock'em Robots and just mashing on it. Or you've got some baseball fan from South at a Red Sox game like, come on, pitcher, hey, batter, strike him the f out like just yelling in his ear because for Tolulan like he'll go one two one two one two back out and then throw like one leg kick and then wait there and then throw a hook and then one two one two like it really is a game plan that I see him struggling with against not even ranked fighters in the UFC and then if you watch his fight his last time out against Jamie Pickett and you just look at the graphic that they put up it's almost like Adley Rushman like lifting weights trying to quote I think you should leave because he kind of reminded me of Carl Havoc like I don't even want to be around anymore he just didn't look like he was all that interested and in the first round it was competitive I mean you can make a case for either guy that won the first round most thought that Tallulah did in the second round, he was like uh, an old-timey Viking. He went berserker, and he ended up getting a crazy knockout win there. Joe Rogan was all over it, and that's the other thing about Dennis Tallulah. And the craziest part is, if you consider the fighters that made their debuts in 2020 or 2022, 2021, the last two years, a lot of them fought at the UFC's apex. Dennis Tallulah has fought at Nationwide Arena in Columbus, and then his last time out was UFC... Uh, what was it, 279, Diaz versus Ferguson at T-Mobile Arena. This is the first time Dennis Loon's fought in the UFC without a crowd. How do you think that's going to affect his Rock'em Sock'em mindset? I don't think it will just because it's so embedded into who he is. And the thing about Tallulah is he is a bit of an old dog, so I doubt he's going to learn a lot of new tricks every time we see him out there, as, uh, well, I guess as opposed to the previous fighter we talked about. Like, Tatsulo Taye is 23. He's awesome. He's going to get better every time we see him. No, he's only 22. I just, well, he'll be 23 by the time of the fight, sorry. Tallulah's 34 and he's been fighting like this for a minute now, but Tallulah's always going to have that fight of the night style that I think is going to, uh, even the most casual of audiences can appreciate his fighting style. Now, is Tallulah going to make his way into the top 15 and then the top 10 and then a title shot? 
Probably not, but I think he could have some interesting matchups on the way there. And this fight against Perk, when I had originally looked at it, I had kind of discredited Tallulan and his abilities in this fight. I thought, hey, Perk's a lot more well-rounded. He'll brawl on the outside, and he does have success doing that, so I don't just think Tallulan's going to win every moment on the feet. But the more that I do think about it, I don't think Jun Young Park's going to want to stand with Dennis Tallulan at all in this matchup. Like, I do worry about Park's mindset just because he will brawl, especially early on in his fights, and then that will be used to then open up his wrestling and some of his grappling. I worry about him in those opening three, four-minute spurts where Tallulan's going to be at the peak of his powers, where he should be able to defend some of those early takedown attempts, force this into more of a boxing match, and if that is the case, if they start going one strike for one strike, it's going to be a short night for the Iron no. Turtle. His nickname might talk about durability, but Dennis Tallulan hits so effing hard that I just don't know if Park wants to play that game early on, even though we have seen him do that. And we saw Dennis Tallulan UFC debut against a Black Wolf, Ali Eskab Hazgiriev, a guy who is really good at wrestling and his affiliations lie with what they lie in southern, uh, you know, the country that he comes from. But when you do look at that matchup, yeah, he struggled against a takedown, but he had the right idea. I mean, Hazgiriev went for the takedown. Tallulan goes two legs on, or sorry, two legs. You can't grab with two your arms legs. Off Two arms to try and grab the opposite leg, and as he does it, Hazriev gets the back, gets her in a choke. But the right idea was there. It's just for Tallulan, from what we saw on the regional scene to what we've seen against better levels competition or guys making their pro debut, he's the same guy every fight. It really is button mashing. It's your friend playing, trying to get all the knockdowns in UFC 4. For Junyoung Park, he can box. He is technical on the outside. He stands really tall and upright for his height, which he can be at a disadvantage in the middleweight division. He is at least so in this matchup as well. But the thing when I went back and watched the tape on Jin Young Park, he's definitely fought the better level of competition. Oh, we can sure. definitely agree on that. And in the UFC, his losses are to Gregory Rodriguez, who... I mean, that age is poorly just because he lost to Bruno Fajeda in the last UFC card. But Gregory's a, a good fighter, part and parcel. Exactly. Anthony Hernandez is a good fighter. The wins, Marc-Andre Barrio, John Phillips, Stefan Chukwe, Eric Anders, and Joseph Holmes. But you go back and you look at the parts where he struggles, it's in the fact that he can strike and then stand there with his hands way out, leaves his head on the center line, doesn't move his body or his head. It just stays right there. And he's there to be countered and teed off on. And that's what I worry about. When he's won in the UFC, with one exception, he's out-wrestled his opponent. When he's lost, he's been out-wrestled. His fight against Hernandez, he got taken down six times. His fight against Gregory Rodriguez, twice. The takedowns were the story of the loss. He got knocked out. And in the wins, he takes down Barrio. He takes down Phillips. He takes down Chukwe. And he takes down Joseph Holmes twice. His lone loss, it's, or sorry, his lone win that's an outlier, the fight against Eric Anders. Anders took him down a couple of times in that one. But if you look at it, even in the fight against Joseph Holmes from distance, round one, Holmes won round one, and he was hitting him with those long, long jabs where he didn't throw a ton of volume, but he was still able to hit through that guard easily. He was, and that's why I do worry about Park on the outside. I think of Tulu went to the body a little bit more with his boxing. He would have a lot of success in this matchup just because of Park's defense. He does stand very square, and I understand that opens up some of his own, not only boxing techniques, but wrestling as well. It helps him kind of dart forward into some of his takedowns, but it does make him available to be hit. But again, I keep on going back to the fact that Park can still easily out-wrestle Tallulah. Like, both of those windows are wide open. If Tallulah wins by first-round knockout, I don't think many people would be very surprised, but if Park can withstand that early storm and at least get it into the clinch early to wear on Tallulah because that's going to be really important. If he just lets Tallulah tee off on him at range, Dennis won't get that tired. Like, of course he's going to get tired as the fight goes on, but you really want to wear on him with the clinch and the wrestling to help speed up that process, because I do think Park 
Stark has the better cardio in the matchup, and if he can at least survive past the kind of first round and a half, I'd say, I really do think he could come on strong in the second half of the second round and the third round with his grappling advantage, because if Tallulah gets flat on his back, he's not great at getting back up. Like, he's not going to start working jiu-jitsu off his back like he's Paul Craig. He's not someone who's going to, I don't know, hit crazy butterfly sweeps like he's Brandon Moreno off his back. Tallulah is kind of that shutdown grappler. Hope the ref gets him up. Maybe, if anything, he'll make a bad position, uh, positional move. So, I do worry. I think Tallulah can have success in the areas we all know he can have success in, but I still worry about him with that wrestling and defensive grappling. Well, I mean, Junior and Park about a 2-1 to one favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us they are to you I'm going to set the over-under and say 70% over-under for Jin Young Park. I think they'll be over. I think they're going to be over. They are over. 965 total votes. 86% Park. 69% by decision for the 14% that have Tululin. 61% by knockout. I didn't mention this. Out of the boxing for both of these guys, Jin Young Park likes to blend his power in with a lot of his shots. And he will throw in combination a little bit more successfully than a guy like Tululin. But for Tallulah, the thing that I like is when distance gets closed and if a fighter wants to try and clinch up against him, he's got good forearm strikes and elbows when you're trying to advance. So again, for Park, he could get caught where he's backing up quite a bit, trying to throw volume, and Tallulah's going out there and just landing power shots. And all he does is it's like a right cross and a left hook, and then he just continues to mash the same combination over and over and over again. I ever so slightly like the experience at a park and the perceived wrestling advantage. I mean, if you can out-wrestle a guy like Badio, if you can out-wrestle some of those bigger guys in this division, I think he can have some success with that in this matchup. But Tallulah with the power and Jin Young Park, we saw him susceptible to getting finished against a guy like Gregory Rodriguez, known for his power. I wouldn't make fun of someone necessarily if you're going to go with the underdog and Tallulah in this matchup, even though coming into the UFC, I didn't think very highly of him. I could easily see Tallulah winning by finish, but I agree with you. I just think Park has more avenues to win. I like the wrestling. I think he's more likely to win by decision, and he could still win by finish, too. He's got good ground and pound. He's got good submissions. His own boxing is pretty strong if Tallulah does tire as the fight progresses, so I agree. I've also got Park. Big time matchup in this middleweight division. Both of us going with the Iron Turtle. Jun Young Park to get the win. We have the Road to UFC Finals. The tournament championships are on this prelims. You're not going to want to miss them. Keep it locked in with Fight picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. This weekend in the women's flyweight division, this is like the first four before March Madness. Like, you're getting ready for it. You win, you're in. You lose, you go home. We have Gian Kim, Firefist, taking on Monster Mandy Berm. And Matt, there's a couple of monsters on this card. One of them's Derek Lewis. One of them's Kyle Nelson, because that's also his nickname. And one of them's Mandy Berm, and she's looked a little bit less like a monster and more like a stuffed animal in the UFC. And... I say this with all due respect. Oh, I said it with all due respect. For Mandy Boom, she hasn't won a single f***ing round in the UFC. Two tough. fights, two losses, it's both of them 30-27s. One against the Queen of Violence, Ariane Lipsky, who looked like the Queen of Violence. Dropped Boom round two, dropped her round three. And then she fought Victoria Leonardo as a slight favorite and looked terrible in that fight. And so for Mandy Boom, coming into the UFC, she was a champion with TKO in Quebec on a big-time card. And she was also... A fighter with Bellator. She was one of those rare fighters who fought with Bellator, took a little bit of time off, and signed with the UFC like she's Michael Chandler, except Michael Chandler's fought for a UFC title. 
fairly good. Mandy Boom, 30 27, six times in two fights. To be fair, Michael Chandler had a lot more fanfare I, coming like, over. Boom in the UFC, she struggled, and, and I, I'm being very harsh on her, and, and I don't necessarily mean to, but she struggled with the striking defense. She struggled with her distance management. She struggled in every single aspect, and her offensive output has been very limited. We've seen a lot of front kicks, a lot of prodding shots from distance, a reset, single shot, reset, and she struggled mightily. And for Gian Kim, I mean, she's lost four fights in a row. You look at it, nine, six, and two. And for Kim, if I'm not mistaken, I picked her in like all three of her last fights. And they've been really close. Like she's had two fight of the nights, one against Molly McCann, one against uh, Priscilla Cachueta, where Cachueta wins. And then it's like she won an Oscar and she's got this big post-fight speech and they give her a purple belt for striking. And her last time out, short notice fight, up a weight class at Bantamweight, split decision loss to Jocelyn Edwards. And... I only thought Kim won one of the rounds. It was weird that it was a split. But still, it's it's a weird reset for a fighter that's 9-6-2. She's still not great, though. I, I feel like we're almost overselling Kim to try to justify where Mandy Boom is in the matchup. Like, this isn't the best of fights. And it is weird, because you're right. Boom does like to throw those single shots from the outside. Very long, prodding strikes. Kim moves a lot on the outside, though. Like, probably way too much, for being completely honest, because she's not someone who likes to sit down on a lot of her shots, and that could make for a bit of a stale view. We could just see Boom standing there being the more stationary of the two. She doesn't have overwhelming power by any means. She's not really worried, oh, if Boom lands one, down goes Kim. But... I could see a world where Boom maybe outstrikes her from the outside. Not a fucking chance. I'm only making that as the one potential way for her to win this fight. I agree with you. I don't think she really has a chance in this match. Because the one thing I will say about ji Kim, even though she is 0-4 in her last four, there's always one thing in her fights that t- can be taken away as a bit of a positive. The problem is, she can just never keep it going consistently in any of her matchups. Like, sometimes her boxing will look really good, and then she'll get into a bit of a period where she's not really doing anything. Kind of winning on the outside using too much movement that's been the issue with Kim it's been her lack of ability to really string a lot of success together in an individual matchup but I will definitely say that there's been a lot more positives to draw from Kim in her losses than you can from Mandy Boom well and that's the thing like Gian Kim's one of those fighters we paint a picture her last win was over one of Matt's favorite fighters of all time Nadia Kasem, Kasem over in Australia, and Nadia didn't have a good run in the UFC. Gian Kim, for what it's worth, if you do consider it, she hasn't beaten a current UFC fighter. She has wins over Justine Kish, Melinda Fabian, and Nadia Kasem in the UFC. The losses to Pudzilova, Shevchenko, Grasso, McCann, Cachueta, and of course, Jocelyn Edwards. And if you consider it in this fight, and you look at Gian Kim, she was the Deep Jewels Bantamweight champ. She was a champ over a gladiator before she came into the UFC in 2000. 2015 and her background's one of those ones where you go wow look at that like she went three and zero in amateur mma she went six and two in amateur boxing 11 two and one in kickboxing she was a, or she is a third degree black belt in hot keto and she's also a black belt in wushu chinese kickboxing so you love all of those things and all the parts out of her game but for kim i mean she hasn't won a fight since that one against nadia over three years ago for Mandy Boom, she hasn't won a fight in almost two and a half years over with Bellator. So for me, when I look at their fighting styles, it's just a lot more volume and better boxing at a Gian Kim. And for Mandy Boom, she's got to get out to a fast start. And I haven't seen it in a really, really long time. And the level of competition that Boom was beating over with Bellator, TKO, and GFC or GMC before that, I mean, like, that's a strong built truck. But when you look at it, like, Boom, I, I just... 
I, I don't know. I, I don't think she wins this fight. I've never made a video this way. I don't see her winning yeah, this fight Yeah, you really got fired up on Mandy Boom. I, the thing is, Jian Kim's 0-4 in her last four. Like, she's not fighting a good fighter in this. Mandy Boom isn't. Like, Jian Kim might show flashes of positives in some of her matchups. But again, she has not been able to put that whole package together for years now. And she is 33, so she's kind of running out of time to really be able to put together the whole entire game plan. It's not like her, her best years are ahead of her. Like, if anything, she's in her prime right now, and she hasn't really been able to show it. So, I have Jian Kim in this matchup. But again, she has not wowed me up until this point whatsoever. No, and she's creeping in on a three to one favorite which can be a little scary we'll have a look at the topology votes are surprised to us as they are to you i'm gonna say over under 72 and a half percent camp probably over probably over oh boy 942 total votes 72 percent kim 91 percent by decision for the 25 percent that i boom 84 percent by decision and going back to boom's last fight against victoria leonardo we both had boom to beat leonardo in that one and if you look at it i mean again she struggled in every aspect offensively and defensively in that fight and the fight against Ariane Lipsky. And in this matchup for Kim, like, I thought she beat Cachoeira. She had a conversation to beating Molly McCann. And her last time out, split decision loss to Jocelyn Edwards, who missed weight at 135 and weighed 137.5. And Kim won around in that fight. So for me, it's the boxing. It's the striking from the outside. Unless Mandy Barham shows up like a completely different fighter, I have fire fist to get the win in this one. I've also got Fire Fist, but again, it's Jeff Hardy versus CM Punk at SmackDown in 2009. Losers going home. All right, Matt, a big time matchup. Both of us going Kim in this one. And now it's finally time. Bring out the fighting handbook. We're talking about Road to UFC and the four championship matchups in the tournament. Make sure you check it out. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. And the road to UFC heads to Vegas. We have the tournament championship finals matchup at flyweight between peace of mind, Hyung Sung Park taking on the Korean zombie MMA protege. It's Sung Guk Choi for that flyweight title and a chance or a contract in the UFC. And for both of these guys, very, very interesting road to UFC tournaments. For Hyung Sung Park, I mean, this is a guy so interesting, undefeated as an amateur fighter, 3-0, 7-0 as a pro. He was a double G flyweight champ before he made it into the tournament. And inside of the tournament, wins over Sirigar by knockout. And Tatnoi Kwiram, or Kiram, who, if you look at it for Tatnoi, I mean, at one point they were training partners, like there was bad blood. Tatnoi was ripping darts post-fight after his first win. They square those guys off, like they're absolutely loving it. fight too. And Park looked great in that fight. So for Park, I mean, he really is an interesting case when you consider all of this. Six of his seven pro wins are by finish, three by rear naked choke. And three by knockout. I mean, he is kind of one of those complete package type of fighters. But I will say this for both of these guys, Matt. They both come out of good gyms. As I mentioned, for Sung Guk Choi, he won't get all of the fanfare. Because he's not as, maybe as flashy of a striker. And he likes to go out there and implement his wrestling game very early on. But for Choi and for Park, I can see these guys not just being like one and done, like turn and burn type EOC fighters. I think they've got some longevity based on the fact that Flyweight's added so many names to this division lately. 
you're right, but I also thought Ricky Tertios was going to be awesome. And that's the thing. Like, in MMA, it's impossible to predict with prospects. It really is. Like, I wore this Tyler Hero jersey. Tyler Hero's pretty good right now, but it's taken about four seasons for everybody to agree on that one opinion. Tyler Hero went from being overvalued as a rookie to undervalued as a sophomore to, hey, what the hell is this guy uh, in his third year? And now people are like, hey, Tyler Hero's pretty good. So My point is, though, in basketball and in other sports, there's things like the G League, things like the the CHL and hockey, like places that you can put your prospects to where we don't get to see all of their hiccups and then you can bring them up once they are a developed product. In MMA, when guys lose one time, everybody writes them off like they're no good and like none of the positives ever existed in the first place. And there really isn't a chance to, for lack of a better term, kind of get sent down to then work on those things that you need to improve on. And that's why I, I knew we were going to say this on a lot of these and that's why I wanted to get it right out of the way right now. It's so difficult to project the ceilings on basically all of these fighters. Like, on Contender Series, they just had their first champion. That show's been on for a while now, and Jamal Hill's pretty good. So, I think Park is a decently high ceiling, and I think the winner of this is a pretty high ceiling, but it's going to be interesting to see as they go forward, because the thing about Flyweight is, it's not the deepest of divisions, but every fighter who's signed to the Flyweight division seems to be pretty good at this point, so I will be interested to see where the winner does get matched up moving forward, because there's some fighters coming in from other organizations, and you can kind of tell from their first few matchups, especially if they got cancelled, what the organization thought of that fighter. I'll be very curious to see what the winner of this fight gets as their second time out there. Park had the respect of the odds makers in his fights on this season because he's minus 200 in that debut against Siragar, finished him in the first round. If you do look at it, he was a slight favorite over Kiram in that fight, so Topnoy. But if you do consider it, I mean, even with Double G when he was the champ, I mean, I went back, you watch his fight against Juhan Kim, and in that fight, I mean, he beats the brakes off of Kim to where Kim's like laying down on the ground like he's had enough. And the referee goes over and he's like, stand up. And Kim just keeps laying there. He grabs Kim's arm and stands him up. And then he eats a knee and gets beaten into very just the mat. Like, it was tough. But again... Park is a very, very good fighter in that way. I absolutely love the striking. I love the ground game that he has. His offensive wrestling isn't, like, we don't see it a ton, but it is pretty good. His defensive wrestling, maybe there's some question marks, especially against a guy like Choi. But the only weakness I could find is he's got a little bit of a low right hand sometimes. Like, that's basically it for Park that I see. And if Choi could disguise some of his shots with his wrestling, he could have success that way. But the issue I think Choi might run into in this fight is he's the more stiff striker. Like, when you watch Park throw combinations, it's all very fluid. It's all very natural. Choi, it's almost like kind of second nature, if you will, is kind of think and then do. And I think in some of those in-betweens before he can go for his wrestling, that's where he could struggle. But I do agree with you. I think if Choi is going to go out there and put on a really good performance, he is going to have to rely a lot on that wrestling. Go to the well over and over again. But I'll be very curious to see if Choi's own gas tank can hold up to a game plan like that. Because we know Park is that finisher. He doesn't really go to the third round very often. His last decision win was his second uh, professional fight. So it's been a long time for Park. I'll be interested to see if he can also keep that really high work rate going into the third. And it'll be interesting for both of these guys. I mean, both guys out of Korea. I You look at it for Sungook Choi as a teammate on this card in the fact that Duho Choi is here, both representing Korean Zombie MMA. But for Choi on the season, I mean, again, he has the fight against the man himself. I mean, it's just that one against Kilun. He gets the win by decision, but if you consider it, and, and I guess Rama Supandi, and he, he was a slight favorite in that one. He goes out there. He has good takedown defense, turns that into his own offense but if you do consider it I mean he makes his pro debut on a TFC card headlined by Trevin Jones 
like that guy and so far it, it's been an interesting run for him i guess i mean the level of competition for both these guys is kind of all over the place but for Choi, he had a big layoff 2020 to 2022 you look at it i mean super nd and then kilun you never know what you're gonna get out of a fighter that's 16 and 8 in a tournament like that we'll talk about that later with uh uh Yijia that's on this card but you consider it for both of these guys you look at the odds in the matchup and of course yeah Park is a, a bigger favorite we've seen more well-roundedness out of him we've seen heavier hands but Choi's one of those guys that can just kind of nullify that with his wrestling attack so we have a look at the topology votes Matt in this matchup and I'm gonna set the over under I'm gonna say 70% Park. I think it'll be over. I think it's going to be over. It's way over. 831 total votes, 90% Park, 55% by decision, 23% by submission. For the 10% that have Choi, 70% by decision in this one. And and that's kind of the way that I see it too. Like if Choi's going to win, just kind of like John Fitch this fight. Hang on. Wow. Hang on for dear life. Make it boring. But I, I do like Park in the matchup. And I, I really think those speedy hands are going to catch Choi. Because Choi tends to, even when he's striking, lean with his head. And if you start leaning and leading with your head, I mean, that's just a method to, to get finished in a fight like this. Peace of mind's a pretty fun nickname. It's not an aggressive one by any means. It's kind of a unique one for MMA. I also have Park in the matchup, though. I like his well-roundedness, and I do like his ability to go out there and get the finish. Now, if he starts fighting some of those cardio kings in this division, I'm gonna worry about how he looks as the fight progresses, but in this matchup, I do like Park. Yeah, if you look at it, uh, Sungguk Choi's last fight before he was in road to UFC, it was with Zeus. The promotion Zeus 4 and when they introduce him he runs out and it's like playing you know NHL 23 like there's smoke cannons coming out of the the turnbuckles in the corner of the cage but a big time fight and both of us going with Hyungsung Park in the first of the tournament finals road to UFC this one at flyweight bantamweight featherweight and lightweight to come you're not going to want to miss it keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. Coming up this weekend in the Road to UFC Tournament Championships, this time at Bantamweight, we have fellow Japanese prospects Rinya Nakamura and Toshiomi Kazama battling it out for that chance at a UFC contract. And both of these finishers, Matt, and I say finishers, are very, very interesting prospects coming into this tournament championship. I mean, if you look at it for Rinya Nakamura, He's probably the most polished of the guys that are fighting the eight fighters in these tournament finals, oh, yeah. whether it's from flyweight all the way up to lightweight. And you might know Nakamura from like, you know, wrestling meets, you know, because if you look at him, I mean, the 2017 under 23, 61 kilogram world champion freestyle wrestler. And he's definitely that type of prospect. He competed at Worlds in 2018. Team Japan finished third in that tournament in Iowa. And if you look at it for Nakamura, I mean, this is a guy like his family or his father was one of the originators of Shuto MMA over in Japan in the 90s. So really cool stuff there from Nakamura. But you look at it, already 6-0 as a pro. He just debuted a couple of years ago in 2021. And that was it. I mean, when wrestling 2017, 2018, he kind of hit his peak. He had a plan on going to the Olympics. But with the way that things went, he just decided to transition into MMA. And by goodness, I'm glad he well, did. Pretty because good at it. You look at this guy from Southpaw, you look at the striking that he possesses. He doesn't necessarily look just like a wrestler. And I think of guys that got to the nth degree of wrestling, ended up in the UFC or the top levels of MMA. You look at a guy like Mark Madsen with his Greco Roman. I mean, Mark Madsen probably dreams of fighting like Rinya Nakamura someday. Like, you look at this guy. 
And he's Let's really, wait until he gets to the UFC. Yeah, first. but he's he's really really scratched the surface of what you can become having just such a high level skill set. And for Kazama, the same thing could be said. I mean, you look at his jujitsu; he's competing at meets all the time. But you look at how his jiu-jitsu translates into MMA, and it's perfect. It fits like a glove. So you look at it for Kazama, even that win that he had before the road to UFC tournament, and that was against uh, Shinsuke Miyabi, and that was a one-night tournament that he had in that one. I mean, my God, like, chickowing behind his back, like, made him tap. It was disgusting. So Kazama, great with his jiu-jitsu. For Nakamura, you know how good his wrestling is, but his striking's really come out of nowhere. And my God, for, for physique levels out of a guy like Nakamura, more the guy's built like a brick you know what house he's a world champion level wrestler most of them are i just don't know how kazama gets this fight to the mat on his terms and that's what i keep on going back to because nakamura he has a huge wrestling advantage you don't need us to tell you that it's just it is so ingrained into him he is a dominant wrestler but let's say he has any troubles on the mat, and I don't even think he's going to have that, if I'm being completely honest. But let's say he does get uncomfortable from the top position. Well, he's the one with the wrestling advantage. He can decide whether or not they are grapplers or they are going to be strikers. And on the feet, I do think Nakamura not only is the more complete striker, he's the more heavy-handed striker out of the two. He's the far better boxer. I shouldn't say striker, because Nakamura is not going to go in there and hit you with a high level of kicks. He's not going to be like Jamal Hill, throw a bunch of head kicks, a bunch of body kicks. He will work primarily behind the boxing, but like we've seen out of a lot of dominant wrestlers boxing is great for wrestlers because it makes you uh compete in that close range and that helps you with both the legs right there to grab the heads right there to punch and i do think nakamura does have a decided advantage in the striking which is really going to matter because if the ground game is equal and i don't think it is i'm just saying let's say everything is on kazama's side to where his grappling can cancel out some of nakamura's i still think nakamura on the feet is the better fighter and i still think he's gonna have success in the match and i mean if you look at it for kazama out of his 10 wins eight of them are by submission like i said i mean he's a purple belt in jiu-jitsu he was the ibjjf i said adcc meant to say ibjjf champ in 2018 2019 his nickname on the regional scene was silent finisher because her parents are home at silent wow. finisher that was the nickname but if you do consider it i mean he was one of the guys that actually did get a buy in this tournament his opponent uh kim min woo weighed in at 139.5 so you get a buy there got the win over wlf war star karim wally Mametwadi, and in that one, I mean, he was 27 and 11. One of those prospects that uh, WLF Wars, you never know what you're you going to get. And that's like a box of chocolates. You got a bad fighter. But I, again, I, I do look at this matchup and I agree with you. I think the striking's coming along for Nakamura. He's not one of those Jake Shields, John Fitch type wrestlers no, because he's going out there trying to get a finish. Kazama, when it does come to his own striking defense, he can stand kind of square when he walks guys down. He does hold his hands up high but he holds him kind of like side of the face, so he can get hit straight through the middle. And I see an avenue to be open for the kicks of Nakamura as well. And his kicks are great. I mean, you saw that on the season of Road to UFC. But when we do consider this one, Matt, if you look at the odds, Nakamura is one of the bigger favorites on the card. We have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say over under 87.5% Nakamura. I think it'll be well into the 90s. 93% of 843 total votes on Nakamura. 68% by knockout for the 7% that have Kazama. 31% by submission. I'm surprised those aren't higher. Based on how good Kazama's grappling is in MMA. And we've seen that out of these fights. Again, his takedowns are more... I'm going to wear on you. I'm going to hold you up against the cage. I'm going to try and trick you and then either go body lock, trip. Maybe I switch over to a single. But 
I did like what I saw out of Kazama on the regional scene. Hopefully, you know, he can get a little bit more seasoning. He's only 25 and maybe does end up in the UFC. But in the matchup like this, I mean, I think Nakamura has pretty well all the tools unless he leaves his head out there to get submitted. I think Nakamura has the highest ceiling out of any of the finalists. But, and it's just because he has such a dominant foundation, but he's also been able to build on that and show improvements in the other aspects of his game. That's why I think Nakamura's probably got this one. Matt, both of us going with the hybrid Nico Price. No, I'm just kidding. It's Rinya Nakamura to get the win coming up this weekend against the silent finisher, Bussin. Toshiomi Kazama, Matt, we also have the Featherweight Grand Prix, well, the Featherweight Tournament Finals, we have the Lightweight Tournament Finals as well with the Road to UFC, you're not going to want to miss it, keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. In the Featherweight Division, the Finals of the Road to UFC Tournament, we have one of the stars of the season, it's the Korean Tiger, Jung Young Lee taking on China's Yi Zhe, the former WLF Wars featherweight champ, is Yi Zhe. And when it comes to fighters of, of WLF Wars, I never know what we're going to get. I mean, I went through like some recent fighters. Yi Zhe trains with Sumit Ergi, so that is a guy that spent time there. He also trains with Rong Zhu, who is in and out of the UFC pretty quickly, but another young prospect that if he can bring it together, Rong Zhu's boxing is quite good. And then another fighter that I could think of out of that organization, Wu Yanan. She he was out of WLF Wars, but you never know what you're going to get because records are very, very padded. And for Yi Zhe, coming into the season, he was 19-3, and and he was a pretty big underdog in his debut. And he ends up going out there, using his complete game plan, gets the win over uh, Kizuki Sasu, and he ends up getting a submission win. His last time out, he gets a split decision win over Matsushima. And if you consider for Yi Zhe... One of those more well-rounded type of guys that is in this tournament. He will utilize his wrestling. He takes long shots from the outside, kind of ducks his head and tucks it. And that's great because he doesn't tend to get submitted out of all of those takedown attempts. And he's beating guys in the way that you want to see a guy with a record like that, beating them on the regional scene. The flip side is... He wasn't fighting anybody good with WLF4s, and he wasn't necessarily seasoned against upper-level competition, where, by comparison, Jung Young Lee, a guy who, at 9-1, and one, was facing good levels of opposition over with Road FC. He was the Road FC featherweight champ, reigning, and he defended it against Mu Gyum Choi. And if you consider it, the only loss that he has on his record was a decision loss back in 2017. But Lee was an interesting guy coming into this tournament, like a few others, because he had almost a three-year layoff from being the Road FC champ, just going all violence on everybody over with Road FC, to then fighting in this tournament. So he's only a slight favorite when he made that debut against Ji Bin. But you consider it, Matt, I mean, 30... Six-second submission win in that fight, and then he beats Luke Kai, 42-second knockout. Like, he's just consider or continue that dominance that he had even when he was a champ with Road FC. Lee reminds me a lot of Chris Duarte for the Indiana Pacers. Much more last season than this year. But when you think about guys who spent four years in college who then make the transition to the league, they don't really have those growing pains that a lot of other rookies would have. And for Lee, he does seem to have a very... Uh, educated, uh, mature, I guess, game plan is the word that I'm looking for because his striking is well put together and he doesn't leave a ton of openings for counter shots. The one thing that I do worry about with Lee, though, and I was just thinking about this, when Alexander Volkanovsky fought Max Holloway for the third time, he got on the inside of his range, didn't let Max Holloway's range be a factor, and he made it a hand speed contest because his hand speed was so much better than Holloway's, he was able to get from point A to point B a lot faster. The only thing I worry about with Lee is he does put a lot of power behind his shots and 
sometimes he telegraphs them a little bit. Now, if he does fight a really good counter strike or can move on the outside, draw out some of those attacks, I think he could get countered against some of the more high-level fighters in the division, but I'm talking about him fighting up the division, like borderline ranked fighters at this point. I don't think Yijia is going to be the type of fighter who can take advantage of some of those holes, but I have really enjoyed what I've seen out of Lee up until this point. They've been quick finishes. He's been able to demonstrate uh, at least grappling knowledge. I wouldn't say he is a grappler by trade, but if he has you hurt, he can go for chokes, he can go for armbars and whatnot, but his boxing on the outside really is the X factor and believe is the thing that stands out the most. His ability to throw in combination, throw the right hand as a lead shot, not only as a follow-up to his jab, it's just really nice to see a guy who is, uh, I guess, on his way to making his UFC debut, be able to have those types of skills. One nice thing, if you're just listening to us and you've never seen these two guys fight, the tape's out there. Like, you can find a ton of Yijia tape. You don't have to just take the Chinese characters and put them on the internet and find it that way. You can. Or you can find it on YouTube and a lot of Road FC fights you can find on YouTube on different social media platforms. But for the Korean Tiger, you look at his last decision win. It was when he won the belt back in 2018 against Mu Gyum Choi. In that one, First round, somewhat competitive. He kind of pulls away with a striking. Second round, he beats him up and brutalizes his left eye. Third round, I looked at it and it says decision. I watched the fight. I thought, but they blow the horn. Like, he must win that fight by TKO. It was like the last second they blew the horn. The referee was going in. He was beating the brakes off of Choi in that fight. And then he goes out there against his former teammate, uh, Hei Jin Park, and knocks him out in 10 like seconds. Like Dominic Reyes OSP. Shout out. That was a weird finish. It was, yeah, it was really, really crazy. But again, like I, I look at this matchup. I, I would say Yuja has the, the wrestling advantage in this matchup. The scary thing is, we talked about it in the Bantamweight division. You look at it, I mean, Kazama was able to get a win on this season over Karim Wally. And in that matchup, he beats him by decision. That was the same guy that knocked out Yijia almost two years ago. And now he or he at least was competing in the Bantamweight division of this tournament. So for Yijia, his striking defense can kind of cause him problems. He kind of fights like one of those UFC fighters. When you're on the outside at the start, you don't know how to glove tap. So you just kind of like start moving around. He holds his hands incredibly high and backs up. And he leaves his body exposed. He leaves his legs out. He takes long shots. His striking very much is like a guy like Hazel. Aguilar who's on the bottom of this card where kind of throws everything out there to try and then get the takedown to close the action so I look at the matchup Matt I mean I also look we threw this one out there in a poll on Instagram 55% of the Instagram respondents going with Jung Young Lee to get the win 45% going with Yi Zhao, which surprised the hell out of me because Lee is a pretty big favorite in the matchup. So we'll have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us as they are to you. I think it's going to be far more skewed to Lee so over on topology. I'm going to say over under 75% Lee. I think it'll be over. I think it's going to be over. Yeah, it's over. So 822 total votes, 83% Lee, 70% by knockout for the 17% that have Yi Zhao, 55% by decision, 26% by submission. I think Jung Young Lee continues this kind of reign of dominance with his striking. I think he has a definite size advantage in the matchup, and I think he's going to come in heavier when it comes into the cage. You saw these two guys square off when they squared them off. Um, it was in Abu Dhabi after the, the semifinals, before the finals, and Lee looked a lot bigger in that picture. So, again, for me, I like Jung Young Lee. I like the fact that, you know, he can kind of 
I, I think at least he can kind of withstand some of the grappling, and I think he can outstrike Yijia in this one. I have Lee in the matchup, but I could see Yijia winning by decision. I could see his work rate and just his ability to go for takedowns and get his head out of trouble being uh, to his benefit. Because if Lee can't hit you and damage you, it is going to be difficult for him to rack up some of those points if he's not threatening with submissions on the mat. So I could see a world where Yijia is able to use his wrestling to his benefit, but I agree with you. I do think Lee has such a decided advantage in his striking that he'll be able to use that to his advantage. The BJJ Black the striker is Jung Young Lee. Both of us going with him to get the win in the featherweight division. We have lightweight up next. Amshul Jubli taking on Jekka Saragi. It should be a great fight over there. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. In the tournament finals of Road to UFC with our fighting handbook, make sure you check out those videos. We have lightweights King of Lions Anshul Jubli taking on Indonesia's Jeka Saragi. And Matt, when I look at the season, Anshul Jubli is the runaway like favorite of the season in terms of the fans. Everybody seems to absolutely love him. They think he's going to win this fight. They're going to criticize us if we don't pick him in this one. But I know there's a lot of fan support from the guy who was able to make his mark over with Matrix Fight Series. And for Anshul Jubli, you look at his fighting style, very, very well-rounded. You might look at him and you think, geez, this guy's six feet tall. He's a lightweight. He's at a reach discrepancy against most guys because he's only got a 69-inch reach. But he makes the most of it with car crash striking pretty decent offensive wrestling and he can turn a lot of his opponents takedown attempts into his own takedowns with his upper body strength and then he can really really wear on them when it's on the ground and for Anshul Ghibli if you look at the way that he does grapple once it hits the mat He's not like a Gary Tonin. He's not like a Ryan Hall. He's not going to go out there and try and snatch up in the world. snatch up your legs. He's going to go out there, try and go for arm triangles. He's going to try and maneuver his way to get your arms to get in like a Kimura lock or, or maybe it's an Americana. But for Jubilee, what I found when I went back and I watched a lot of the tape, I listened to his interviews. He's 6-0 and as a pro. He also claims to be 13-0 and as an amateur. So win here would be his 20th straight MMA win. And I listened to an interview he did a while ago with JHK where he said his base in MMA it's street fighting it's like he's Kimbo Slice so Anshul Jubilee representing Soma Fight Club in Indonesia so Indonesia will actually have an opportunity to say hey we've got a UFC fighter no matter who wins this Saragi is also he's from Indonesia and if you look at it for Saragi he gets a couple of big time wins over on road to UFC he beats Poan Man a man out of India and in that fight absolutely decimates him with a spinning oh, back fist and Paul man was a guy that fought at welterweight and then dropped down to lightweight for the tournament so a bigger fighter than saragi which we'll say in about every single one of saragi's fights he's only five foot not eight. a big lightweight at all yeah his big win over uh one b one bin key straight right knocks him out in that one too so two really nice knockout wins for saragi but if you consider it yeah even going back and looking at his fights on the regional scene he typically weighs in around 153 so he's not a giant he's gonna be a featherweight in the ufc not to cut you off yeah. but this is gonna be one of those cases where i think the opportunity dictated his weight class more yeah, than he's, where he's going to be because his, his whole career has been lightweight i understand but with there's fighters who outside the ufc they can get away with fighting other guys who don't cut a tremendous amount of weight then they get to the ufc realize everybody 
is cutting a tremendous amount of weight, then they have to make the change. Because Soragi isn't built like a Michael Chandler. Like, Chandler's a guy who's about 5'8", five, 5'9", five, you know, not going to tower over a lot of lightweights. But you look at him and you understand how he fits into the division. Very stocky figure. Soragi is going to run in, into those issues uh, with the physicality of some of those other lightweight contenders. Now, it will be interesting to see how he deals with it in this matchup against Jubilee. Because what I really like about him is... He's got a good jab from the outside. I know he doesn't have the longest arms in the world. You're right. He is kind of a unique build that way. But on the outside, he can throw a lot of volume at a guy. And I do appreciate that from a younger fighter. Because a lot of fighters have a lot of talent. But they don't have the volume to go along with that talent. And that's why they can lose fights early on in their career. They're just not active enough. They can get behind in the scorecard. Especially with takedowns and whatnot. With Jubilee, I do like the fact that he can go out there and use the jab when he has to. Now, he does enjoy those car crash strikes. It's one of those things where he's technical until he gets hit a couple of times then he'll start to go into a brawl but I do like the technical version of him although we don't always see it I do think there's a fighter in there that can string some success together with that type of a style it'll just be really interesting to see if he uses that kind of a style in this match again the fans love Jubilee but we'll kind of criticize it a little bit and then we'll bring it back so I thought he looked good in the last fight even though it was a split yeah he fought Kyungpyo Kim over in the semi-finals of Road to UFC he didn't fight in the quarterfinals because his opponent Show Patrick Usami wasn't able to make the weight. So he fights Kyung Po Kim, and in that first round, he drops him with a left hook. He had really good leg kicks. He could utilize some of that. Again, offensive and defensive wrestling. I, I think his wrestling, it'll get him caught against really good lightweights, but against very poor lightweights, it'll definitely be a way to win. But the level of competition that Jubilee fought on the regional scene with Matrix Fight Night, because that's where all of his pro fights were, was bad. It was really, really bad. Like he fought uh, Mohammed. Mamudian, and in that fight, Mamudian looked like he jumped up a weight class. He didn't look like he was in shape. He looked really tired. He went for his own takedown, and then Jubilee just trips him, lands beat on him top, yeah. and beat him quite easily. His fight against uh, Serkant Sekar, who was 5-4, and four, it's a decision win on his record. He beat him pillar to post in every single aspect of the fight. He knocks out uh, Rajith Chadron. Like, can we say this though? When you're two and zero, you should probably fight other guys who are in that two and zero. I know he hasn't fought the highest level of prospects, but that's the thing. If you just look at a split decision win his last time out, you're probably not that impressed. But I thought Kim was a really talented fighter. Like that was yes, a good yep. fight between those two guys. And I thought Jubilee was able to win the first round. I thought he was able to win the second. The third it got a little hairy for him, but I thought that was a good fight between those two guys. That's, that was an interesting one leading up to this matchup. That's kind of the crazy thing. So Rejubli in the one fight that was on road to UFC definitely won the first round. Had the knockdown. Round two and round three. Two of the judges scored round two for Kim and two of the judges scored round three for Kim. But that doesn't always work out because it ended up a split decision and you had some dissenting rounds. But if you consider for Jekka Saragi representing Indonesia, even before the fight that he had against Poan Man... He lost two family members. Like, they just passed away very quickly before that one. His fight against Wing Bin Key, he looked really good in that one. He gets that uh, knockout win. So, I love the power that he has. Obviously, we know that only one of his 15 fights has gone to decision. That was a fight earlier on in 2022. He hasn't lost a fight since 2020. He didn't fight the greatest level competition on the regional scene either. But what I've seen out of both of these guys and what I've seen out of a guy, the former one pride MMA lightweight champion, and that is uh, Jekka Saragi, 
I'd say his wildness can definitely translate in a fight like this, and it's obviously won him all of these fights because he is so well-rounded, and again, he is at a height disadvantage in the majority of his fights, being the size that he is, but he can usually overcome that by having the power that he has, mixing up his strikes to all three levels, and then really kind of blending in his own grappling, and in a fight like this, I could see him having success there as well. I could. I, it's a very 50-50 fight. And that has to be said. And that's why I, I I like this fight the most out of all the finales for these. Because it is the most uh, well-matched, if you will. Like, all the other ones seem to have one clear favorite. But this one could go either way. And I don't think anybody would be too surprised. Because both guys are well-rounded. They both enjoy a brawl. It should be an, an exciting fight for the fans. I just think it's a good matchup all around. Well, Jubilee is the slight favorite in the matchup. Let us know who you have in the fight. We're going to have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise to us as they are to you. I know the Fight Night Picks fans on the poll that we had on Instagram at Fight Night Picks were siding with Jubilee. So I'm going to say over under 67.5% Jubilee. I think they'll be under. I think they were over that. Uh, wow. 832 total votes. 78% Saragi, 80% by knockout. For the 22% that have Jubilee, 70% by decision. So listen, like amateur hour, I'll bring it up on my phone and see what the fans had for a vote on this one. 65% Jubilee on our Instagram page is what they went with. 78% Saragi over on Topology. And Jubilee is a slight favorite. So Matt... Again, like, we kind of set it up this way. Both guys are well-rounded in their own rights. One guy's a little bit wilder of a striker. Jubilee is a powerful striker. He's got a good jab, and he throws that left hand a couple of different ways. He'll jab, but also throw it out there as a hook, so you gotta, it keeps you thinking quite a bit. But his striking defense is very much, I move my core from the outside, and I keep my hands out there like I'm riding a chopper, like it's West Coast Customs. So who do you have in this matchup? Because it is a tough one. It is a tough matchup. I do have the larger fighter, though. I guess I'm going to side with our voters on Instagram. I think Jubilee just has the range factor. He is a good striker from the outside. I think the brawling is going to make this entertaining, though, and that's why it's such a hard fight to predict, because either guy could land a big shot from the outside, win it early. Either guy could start to pull away later as the fight goes on, so I'm incredibly excited for this fight, but I do have Jubilee. I like Jubilee in the fact that, again, once he gets it down to the mat, he really controls your upper body because he's bigger than a lot of the guys he's fought too or they look like they're kind of moving up in weight and he's able to hold them down threaten with head and arms threaten with like grabbing their arms going kimura arm lock i don't think saragi's gonna have those problems and i can see saragi sweeping at a lot of those bad positions and i think the car crash striking also lends credence to a saragi win so i'm gonna go with indonesia's jeka saragi regardless indonesia can claim that they have a champion UFC really fighter matt going with india's and shul to get the win let us know down below in the comment section who you have in this matchup the lightweight tournament finals make sure you check out our fighting handbook video it's the road to there it is it's the road to the ufc with the fighting handbook with fight night picks keep it locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it It's time for the highly anticipated UFC debut of Japanese super prospect Yusaku Kinoshita. He got a win in a Dana White's Contender Series main event this past summer over Jose Enrique, who represented Novo Nyao. It was a giant win. He looked great. He is now the Japanese Conor McGregor. That's what they're calling him on the streets. And he's taking on the American Adam Fugette. One of only three Americans on this card that includes Devin Clark and Derek Lewis. And if you look at it for Fugette, took his UFC debut on nine days notice. He replaced Ramiz Brahimai and he took on Michael Morales. And you talk about super prospects. I mean, the prospect out of Ecuador is that guy. 
Fouquet beat him in the first round and looked really good in doing it. And that's the thing. You consider it for the American in this fight out of Oregon, out of Art of War MMA. He's got a really weird southpaw stance. He crouches into it like a like a creeper. Like a tiny goblin man. And what I love out of him, and it's kind of it's on his UFC bio, he loves to throw the left kick out there. And he's one of those guys who's gonna kick you to the legs, to the body, and he's gonna kick you to the head. And it's all kind of from the same angle, so he can kind of disguise it well. It's not like he's throwing teeps up the middle or front kicks up the middle. It is that left roundhouse. But the greatest part about it is where he was able to punch his ticket into the UFC, he beat Dana White's Contender Series uh, veteran, Solomon Renfro, over with LFA. And it was one of their upsets of the year. He was a big-time underdog, like a plus 350 in that fight. And he's landing that kick, and he's landing that kick, and he's mixing it to the three levels. Renfro walks in. He hits him with like a like a shoulder roll right hook and drops him, and then he gets the win. So for Fugat, you might know him because I've talked all about his striking. He was a two-time US EACA Muay Thai champ, CMTA champ, MTG champ, SAAAS Muay Thai champ, and the X1 World Events welterweight champ in MMA. But probably one of the best, most underrated parts of his game is the fact that he's not a bad offensive wrestler, exactly. and his grappling's very good too. So... Fugets one of those guys at 34. It does feel like they're kind of feeding him to the prospects because he fought Morales. Looked good in the first round. Second round, Morales gets back oh, into no. it. Third round takes his back and Craig, you him. know who he is. Who He's is he? the new Tarion Ware. Yeah, he might be the Tarion Ware. Now, we'll see if they give him oh. as many shots as Tarion Ware. But for Isaku Kinoshita, I say he's kind of like the Japanese Conor McGregor because in the third round of his fight against Jose Enrique, he does like the pullback left hand and drops him and finishes him. So he didn't just one-punch knockout. It was he did it to finish it up with a little bit of ground and pound. So it it's wasn't hard, like though. beating Aldo, but... Both guys out of Novo Nyao and Jose Enrique as well as Jose Aldo. But if you do look at it in this fight, Matt, I think the interesting wrinkle for both of these guys is the fact that it's Southpaw versus Southpaw. And this is a fight that was announced way back in October. October 31st, Nolan Kings posted this is going to be a fight. So really, really long fight camps for both of these guys. They better know their game plans inside and out. Who gets weird, because he is kind of stiff for how good of a striker he is, and I don't mean that as a negative, it's just, it is a little wonky, he doesn't strike in a way of like a Vicente Luque, or like an Anderson Silva, where it's all very fluid movements, where it all goes together, there is a bit of a wonkiness to it, there's a bit of a hitch to his step, but it is in a positive way, like when he is able to mix in his kicks with his combos, he does look like a very, very talented striker from the outside, I do worry about him, especially in this matchup, if it does go into boxing range to where it just kind of neglects his kicks completely, because if he does, or if he is able to fight at the outset of his kicking range, again, he could have a lot of success. But if Kinoshita can get on the inside, negate the kicks, check some of them, go to the body with his own boxing, and then start to implement his own combinations, I think Kinoshita has a decided advantage with his hand speed in this matchup. And I think he will be able to use that because if Fugets not able to mix in his combinations with his kicks and with his knees up the middle, I think it could be a long night for him. Now, I, I brought this up multiple times. If he fights like Cowboy did when he fought uh, Eddie Alvarez years and years. And years ago when you're fighting the shorter speedier kind of boxer type use the knees up the middle it's going to keep him at distance keep him at bay prevent him from crashing the distance as much but i'll be interested to see if adam goes for many if any takedowns in this matchup because i could see him struggling especially early on with some of the explosiveness of kinoshita but I-, I could see him start to use his wrestling almost more as the fight goes on i just don't know if that's gonna be one of those things where he could have success with it but it also kind of leaves him open for some shots that could be damaging it just might be one of those double-edged 
double-edged sword kind of tactic. Well, and I mean, Kinoshita, as being such a highly hyped prospect, he made his amateur debut at 16, similar to Tatsuro Taito's also on this Here's card. All finishes in every single one of his wins. His only loss, a second round DQ loss at Ryzen Trigger, number one. And in that fight, and I'll throw the picture up there, he beat the brakes off his opponent, drops him, tries to land a soccer kick, and then he grabs the cage and starts stomping the guy's head in. The referee waves it off. Kinoshita jumps up on the cage. He's celebrating. They're celebrating him as the winner. And then he's kind of like that guy at BKFC last weekend with the, the jigsaw mask that thought that he won, but he lost by DQ. Kinoshita loses because foot stomps are legal in Ryzen. But cage grabs are not. So that's how he ended up losing that fight. If you look at it, even in just the fight that he had on Dana White's Contender Series, 28 shots to the head, 11 to the body, 23 to the leg against uh, Jose Enrique, a guy who had 3 inches of height and 7.5 inches of reach on Kinoshita. And what I like out of Kinoshita is... He did have a hard time in that fight like where he was chasing Enrique at the start and then finally he was able to ease into it, wait and bait with his counter shots and that was a big thing for Kinoshita when he was fighting on the regional scene. It was a lot of counter striking, a lot of, you know, kind of trying to bring his opponent in towards him. He fought with Pancrase, he fought with Ryzen, he fought a decent level of competition or at least guys that had, you know, a lot, of, yeah. a lot of wear on those tires but you consider it in a matchup like this, Matt, Fugets one of those guys that's going to offer him a tough challenge and for Fouguet the only losses that he has is a pro one to Michael Morales who I think of very very highly one to Kalen Hill that was on Dana White's contender series and one to Austin Vanderford who challenged for a Bellator belt against Gegard Musasi last year now for Fouguet and this is kind of my wrap-up point before we talk about the odds and the topology votes Fouguet's fought a southpaw before it was Kalen Hill and if you go and watch that fight Hill goes Southpaw jump knee and in the middle of the jump knee turns it into a Superman punch and knocks Fugetto cold in that one. So that is, listen, a, a tough loss. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that is an area or a path to victory. I was like, I doubt that's going to happen yeah, twice in the man's career. And, and Kinoshita is probably not going to do it. For Kinoshita, his last time out, he got eye poked so many times, like so many times. So he's got to watch out for it in this fight. But I do like the three-level approach from both of these guys. I do like the volume a little bit more out of Kinoshita. I, I like his wrestling. We haven't seen it in, on Contender Series, but we did see it on the regional scene. So, again, when it does come down to this one, Kinoshita, almost a 3-1 to favorite in the matchup. We have a look at the topology votes. They're surprised to us as they are to you. I think the fans are going to side with our prospect out of oh, Japan no. in this one. I'm going to say over under 90% Kinoshita. I think it'll be under 90, though. You think it's going to be under 90? Oh, it is. 944 total votes, 85% Kinoshita, 75% by knockout for the 15% that I forget, 51% by decision, 30% by the knockout. I mean, Fugets always got the forward pressure, and he has really good counter-striking in his own right. Again, I think Southpaw versus Southpaw could be tricky for either guy, so hopefully they get good looks in their camps. For me... I like Kinoshita in this matchup, but I, I don't know. Like, he is a pretty big favorite, but I do like the fact that he is a very well-rounded fighter. Fuget's going to offer him every single question that we're going to need answered, though. Exactly. This is a great matchup that you want prospects to have because it's not really an underhand toss of a fight. Like, yes, Kinoshita is a favorite, but there's a world where Fuget looks really good, hits him with a liver kick, like really test him in this matchup. So I think it's going to be a really entertaining fight, one where we're going to learn a lot more about the prospect, but I still think Kinoshita is probably going to win this one. Both of us going with Japan. 
Japan's Yusaku Kinoshita to get the win in the matchup. We have some big time fights on this card. Dalton Jung's taking on Devin Clark in the co-main event. Derek Lewis and Sergey Spivak in the main. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Apex. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. And it's time for the long-awaited return of the 2022 UFC Hall of Famer. He joined the fight wing for his fight in 2016 at UFC 206 against Cub Swanson. The Korean Superboy, Ho Choi, when he takes on the Muskokan monster, Kyle Nelson, representing House of Champions, Niagara Top Team, and Muskoka Martial Arts. That's his own gym, brother. And Nelson. And for Kyle Nelson in the UFC, it's been a rough run. He lost to Carlos Diego Fajeda on incredibly short notice at 155 five pounds UFC 231 back four years ago so no shame in that loss I think we can both agree on that he lost the Matt sales by submission about three and a half years ago that's he goes out there and beats Polo Reyes and looks really good in that one hits him with a body shot lose to Billy Quarantillo and then he lost to Jai Herbert his last time out now positive out of Kyle Nelson's last fight great leg kicks at the start of it and really did slow down Herbert until the boxing started to progress but the big story in this fight, folks, is Duho Choi and the fact that his last three fights have all been fight of the nights. Runaway consensus fight of the year in 2016 against Cub Swanson. A two-round fight of the night against Jeremy Stevens. He gets finished in the second round. A two-round fight of the night against Charles Jordan. I'll throw the clip up out there about the video we did on Duho Choi and Charles Jordan. Because it's been so long ago. That was over three years ago when he fought Jordan at UFC Fight Night Busan. And if you consider it for Choi... He's had so many injuries, so I had to really try and dig through the weeds to see what all he hurt. He broke his arm in the fight against Charles Jordan, had to get a plate and screws in there, and then if I'm not mistaken, he got the plate and screws removed, but he had to get his arm fixed up. Then he did an interview with JHK with, um, it was South China Morning Post, and in that one he said, so due to the mandatory military service that he was supposed to do, Everything was kind of in limbo before the Jordan fight. So he could only fight in Korea. If he was to take a fight outside, he'd be in trouble. So he could only fight in Korea. The UFC was coming. So he had to fight. And that was the only way he could make any money. So he took the fight. And he tore his ACL before the fight. And he still took it anyway. And then he broke his arm. And then I started to read. And I took his characters in Korean. I put them on the internet. I started to read, go through the weeds. And then I realized, okay... He's had like a major eye injury. So then I tried to dig through it again. I reached out to JHK and then he sent me the interview. And in the interview, he says, okay, do you have an eye condition? Now, the guy that translates from Korean to English doesn't happen to be JHK. He could have done it anyway. But the translator for uh, for the Korean Superboy says it was the thinning of the retina. Now, what he has is called keratoconus and it it, to me i looked it up it's the thinning of the cornea but basically it your eye starts to thin and then you get blurry vision now he said before the fight that he was supposed to have a couple summers ago he was supposed to fight danny chavez but then he had to pull out of it it seems like the eye might have been the issue but he's had eye issues he's had his arm broken he hurt his acl and now after three years away, he's coming into this fight. And it's not because of mandatory military service, because he was able to be exempt from that. So Matt, Duho Choi hasn't won a fight since 2016. The last time Choi won a fight, I Need a One Dance. That was the number one song in the world. The number one movie, Secret Life of Pets, the first one. So Duho Choi doesn't have a win over a current UFC fighter. 
but neither does Kyle Nelson as wins over Polo Reyes. So nobody's going to win over a current UFC fighter. Yet it's an exciting fight, though. Like, this isn't yeah. a bad fight by any means, even though their records might suggest otherwise. I do worry about all the things with Duho Choi, but think about, like, Justin Gaethje. Justin Gaethje became World Series of Fighting Champion while basically being blind, gets eye surgery, now he can see, and he's, like, really good now. So I just think with uh, Michael Bisping, couldn't see out of one of his eyes and then won a UFC title. I'm not discounting the point. I just mean, for some fighters, they've somehow been able to get over that hurdle so we'll be interested to see how Duho Choi deals with all of those injuries because uh, this is going to sound really rude but this is how I'm going to make my point Duho Choi is was sorry a better fighter than Kyle Nelson ever was like Duho Choi's prime he was a really talented fighter in the featherweight division someone who was one of the hottest prospects who was genuinely thought of as a guy who could really go out there and beat anybody in the rankings especially after that fight with Cub Swanson now he lost a lot of himself and I think that's fair to say in that Cub Swanson fight and he had a really quick turnaround against Jeremy Stevens probably too quick and of course he gets finished again in that one I, I worry about how much trade he has left on the tires because of all the injuries and whatnot but if Duo Choi is even 70% of the fighter that he was in his prime I think he can beat Kyle Nelson like if he still has the power and the accuracy that he used to have I think he can knock Kyle Nelson out now is he going to be able to have the longevity the cardio kind of the grittiness that you need from in cage time those things are yet to be seen because it like you said it's been three years there's a lot of things that have changed in those three years and primarily it has been injuries for Choi I just keep on thinking if Choi looks even a little bit like the fighter he used to be I think he could have yeah, success in this matchup and, and the, before watching any of the tape before going into the weeds about injuries and interviews because interviews for both guys yeah I picked Duho Choi sure I pick he him nine day, I, I pick him nine times out of ten sure 100% but all the layoff, all the injuries, and the fact that Kyle Nelson, what's the part of his game that we don't get to see enough in the UFC? It's his wrestling. His wrestling is pretty good. Now, he's been wrestled by guys like Billy Quarantillo, but he's a pretty damn good wrestler up around the rankings wrestler. in this division. So, you look at it for Nelson, his last fight was at lightweight when he took on Jai Herbert, but he's known about this fight for a really long time. I listened to an interview that he did with All Access MMA and James Lynch, and originally this fight and this entire card was supposed to be in Seoul, South Korea. So Kyle Nelson gets one ticket for himself and one ticket for a corner from the UFC. And then he goes, you know what? Well, my fiance is going to be in my corner and I need one more corner. So I just had them handle it and they, they booked me another two tickets. And then the fight got moved to Vegas. And those are non-refundable tickets. So what a kick in the dick that one is. That now, sucks. sounds like you got credits on those airline tickets, but that sucks. The UFC should pay for more corners. I think that's fair. Uh, also, he said the cut to 145 pounds this time around is the best cut of his life because he's had two and a half months to prepare for the cut. It wasn't like it was short notice. There's, a lot of his... No, no, no. A lot of his fights were short notice I before. I just always get I, I always I, get concerned when a guy says well, he's in the best shape of his life or I, this is the best weight cut of my now, life. I did just realize Duho Choi representing Korean Zombie MMA and I have the shirt from earlier on in the show, so I'll zip that one up. But he also said, and these were in his own words, Kyle Nelson's words, look forward to the challenge of standing with him. Now, he did say before that in the interview that he definitely has a wrestling advantage. And I also believe he has a wrestling advantage. You train at Niagara Top Team with guys like Aaron Jeffrey and Anthony Romero, that's going to work that wrestling. That's a great gym for that aspect. I mean, Jasmine Jazz Davizius trains out of that gym. And look what she's been able to do with her wrestling in MMA. But again, like the leg kicks are good out of Kyle Nelson. The wrestling's good. If you can bring those together in a matchup, his hands are nowhere near Duho Choi's, or what I've seen out of Duho Choi years ago. So for me... It is a tough fight. The best Duho Choi beats Kyle Nelson, sure. I don't know what version of Duho Choi I'm going to get. So for that reason, it's a pop popcorn fight for me. 
but it is tricky that way. You don't know what you're gonna get. You certainly don't, because Kyle Nelson is the more well-rounded fighter, but the problem is he likes to play in the wheelhouse of a Duho Choi, and Power's the last thing to go. I don't care how many injuries you've had. I don't care if he's 31. I don't care if he's 41. Duo Choi has incredible power if he's able to land at this weight class. Like at 145, not a lot of guys can absorb his power shots and continue to throw. I know Cub Swanson was able to do it, but it, like he has one of the all-time great chins. And Charles Jordan dropped him and he dropped him back. Like that was a great back and forth fight. I feel like this is a trapdoor fight though. Like, cause like, exactly like you said, when you first look at the matchup, it's, oh, Duo Choi without a doubt is probably going to win this fight. But then you remember just how long it's been since he has been in his prime and that there's a lot of question marks up in your head but I still think I have to pick Duho Choi at the end of the day just because I remember the fighter that he once was and I think he can get back to maybe not 100% of that but he's not 35 he's not 36 he's not 37 like Duho Choi is still only 31 years old and he's more than a 2-1 to one favorite in the matchup and he was so against Charles Jordan I had Jordan that fight for the fact that Choi again took so much damage in those two fights now we're three years removed he's been able to kind of work through a lot of those injuries the eye condition does scare me, but you do consider it. We have a look at the topology votes. Are surprised to us they are to you. I'm gonna say over under. It's probably kind of silly, but I'm gonna say over under 85% choice. I think it'll be under. It's over. 993 total votes, 87% choice, 71% by knockout for the 13% that have Nelson, 39% by decision, 46% by knockout. So from three years ago, I took a Canadian to beat Duho Choi in Busan. Duho Choi is from Busan, and I took Jordan to get the win. He got a performance bonus there, but I'm not taking a Canadian this time. I hate the cut to 145 for Kyle Nelson, no matter how good he claims it is. I think this fight being in the States, it favors Kyle Nelson a bit, but for me, I do like the hand speed out of Choi. I do like the punching power and the range and varied attack that he can throw on the feet. So I'll take Choi in this one, but again, pop and popcorn fight, life for a Korean zombie guy. I'll go Choi here. Yeah, I hate it when guys say I'm in the best shape of my life or this is the best weight cut of my life. So you're saying all the other ones have been terrible up until this point? Like, you just figured it out at the age of 31? What, 18 fights into your career? Like, I just think that's always a silly thing to say no matter what. I have Duo Choi. I kind of tipped my hand a little bit earlier before we did the topology votes. But again, I think if he can get back to 75%, 80% of the fighter that he once was, that's still a pretty darn good fighter. And I still think just him stylistically offers Kyle Nelson a lot of problems. We see the big reset for one of these fighters both on lengthy losing streaks both of us going with the oft injured korean superboy duho Choi, to get the win in the matchup let us know down below in the comment section should we have gone with our fellow canadian and nelson we got some big time fights left on this card that you're not going to want to miss keep it locked in with fight name picks we always say let's get into it in the heavyweight division coming up this weekend we have a man that's in the d tier list of nicknames it's the aptly named marson tybor tybora taking on blagoy baga ivanov and for ivanov i mean this is a guy that in bulgaria he has a no contest where the ring broke like it was wwf it's against alir latifi he also got stabbed in the heart in a barroom brawl and spent 86 days in a coma only for those crazy bulgarians to make him walk out of the hospital to see the reporters where he looked like the shell of a man and if you stuff. You look at Ivanov, he's younger than Marcin Tybora. He looks like he could be his father. And the other part about it is, Blagoy Ivanov, younger than Robert Pattinson, does not wear it well. And maybe that's what happens when he gets stabbed in the heart. But for Blagoy Ivanov, former Bellator main eventer, he won a litany of fights. He went 4-1 with Bellator, won four in a row, lost to Alexander Volkov at Bellator 120. And then he goes, takes a year off, fights with World Series, 
and in his first fight wins the belt and then defends it all the way up to when they became PFL. He won in the inaugural PFL, but it wasn't like the million dollar championship. They, they were still kind of trying to figure things out. They needed Kevin Hart and Tony Robbins they to did. set them straight. And Wiz Khalifa. Nobody writes songs to get high to anymore. Wiz Khalifa. That was a tweet. But when you look at this fight, Matt, as off the rails as I've been so far, Blagoy Ivanov, 2008 Combat Sambo. Did he beat Fedor in that tournament? Also, what year did you just say? 2008. 15 what? years ago? The man in Blagoy Ivanov. I mean, this guy, you know exactly what you're going to get. A guy that's going to take you down. He's going to rinse and repeat. So wait, wait. What? He doesn't First do any man, of that in the UFC? No. 80% of the time in his UFC fights, he strikes from distance? What? Yeah, that's what Blagoy Ivanov has done in the UFC. He's spent a lot of time wearing on his opponents in the clinch up against the cage. Letting his opponents clinch him up to then conserve energy. And when he strikes, he just kind of lets it all hang out. And he dropped Tai Tuivasa. He landed a nice shot against him. Dropped him in the first round. You look at the wins. You look at the losses. Even though I've lost in a main event slot against Junior Dos Santos in his UFC debut. His other losses are against Derek Lewis by split, who's in the main event. And Augusto Sakai by split, who I thought Blagoy won that fight. But Blagoy's last time out beat Marcos Sagerio de Lima. Fans were kind of split on who they actually thought won that fight, but it was close. He's taking on Marcin Tybor, and both of these guys, former champs from regional organizations. Marcin, the former M1 Global champ. Marcin's fought the way better level competition just in the UFC from the sheer number of fights that he's had. But if you look at it for Tybor, even in the last sample size, since 2020, beat Sergei Spivak, Max Grecian, Ben Rothwell, Greg Hardy, Walt Harris, lose to Alexander Volkov in one of the worst fights you're ever going to see. And his last time out, majority decision win over Alexander Romanov that most people thought should have been a draw. He gets 10-8 in the first round, and then he rallies back really well round two, round three. These guys are both entering a weird stage of their career, though, and it's not a common stage that heavyweights get to. Remember when Joanne Calderwood, Joanne Wood, sorry, formerly known as Calderwood, got into that stage where it was like, okay, even if the fight plan goes perfectly, you're probably winning by a split decision. Both these guys have kind of entered that territory. Like, Blagoy Ivanov is great defensively, like you had mentioned, especially with his takedown attempts. Striking's going to be a lot of 50-50 on the in-between, and that's why it's really hard for him to just not only win rounds, but just create a lot of distance between him and his opponent inside of a lot of those rounds. And that's why this fight could either be really exciting or terrible. Oh, I think it's going to be bad. Uh, this is, yeah, this is why. Mercer Deborah at one point of his career, was a good striker. He was kind of fat, uh, fast on his feet. He was a little bit faster back and forth, and he threw a lot more kicks. Again, go back and watch the Verdum fight. He throws a head kick in the fifth round that, like, hurts Verdum at one point. He doesn't really do a lot of that anymore, and he has gone a lot more towards the clinch, towards the takedowns, and he's very talented at all those things, but he has kind of neglected the one area of his game that I think he'd have an advantage in in this matchup. If he was able to stand at kicking range with Blagoye, enough. I know it would make him more susceptible to the takedown in a matchup like this, but I think he'd still be able to throw a lot more offense from that range. Yeah, and I, I think what you're, you're just considering the last two Tybora fights. The fight against Alexander Romano, the fight against Volkov. I thought it's striking again. Round two, round three look good against the tired Romanov, but the fights against Wald Harris and Greg Hardy, the striking to then blend in his takedowns, Tybor was able to go out there. But it was a lot more wrestling that won in those matchups. Again, Tabor back in the day was a movement guy. He would bounce yeah. back and forth and throw kicks. We have not seen that in a number of years but now. But you consider it in this matchup, Matt, and I went on Nate Latshaw's site to try and give me an idea of some of those striking numbers. I already mentioned it. 80% from distance is what Blagoy Ivanov's been doing in the UFC. He's had six fights there. He's at a negative point 
0.77 strike differential on the outside and spends 80% of his time there. Now, he is a tricky southpaw and he did throw that kind of like weird step and hook that he was able to drop to Ivasa in their fight. But you consider for Ivanov out of the wins, Rothwell to Ivasa, he beat by decision. That one ages really well, even though it wasn't a great fight. It was, it was, it was a sloppy it was heavyweight fight, but it was. But you consider for Tybora, I mean, again, the wins, the losses, the MMA math, some guys that they've lost to. He looked to. bad in that Volkov fight. Yeah, he lost to Sakai, lost to Abderhima back in 2019, lost to Lewis, and lost to Verdum. Now, he was beating Lewis until the dying seconds of that third round. But if you do consider it in a matchup like this, Matt, even off plods around. I mean, again, he has that combat Sambo lineage, but he doesn't really use it in a lot of his fights. Rogerio Delim was able to take him down in their last fight. So he's not as big on the offensive takedown as he once was. And for Tybora, he is bigger on the offensive takedown and his striking slowed down in some of these matchups. So it is tough to tell what you're going to get. Even though I've spent quite a bit of time at AKA as well as Extreme Couture training for some of these matchups. Former Sin Tybora out of Ankos MMA with Michael Androsic and Jan Blahovic as well as some of his training partners. So good guys to get you ready for a matchup like this. Tybora is the favorite, about a 2-1 to one in the matchup. We'll have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprised us, they are to you. I think they're going to be somewhat close. I do too. Even though Tybora hit as a giant underdogs last time out against Romanov, I'm going to say over under 70% Tybora. I think it'll be under. I said, uh, well... 984 total votes, 86% Tybora, 80% by decision. For the 14% that I have Ivanov, 72% by decision. I got to be honest with you guys, before I did the tape study and wrote any notes, I thought Blago Ivanov was going to win this fight. I'm dead serious. I'm not, that's not a joke, and I'm not just saying that to pump the video up. I thought Blago Ivanov could slow down Mersin Tybora and get a win. And I think he still could. Yeah, yeah. But I think Tybora is a little bit more of an active striker from distance. And I think his striking is better than Blagoj Ivanov's. I think he can back up quicker than Blagoj Ivanov can. I think he can avoid some of the power shots. And I think at this stage of their careers, Marcin Tybora's offensive grappling is a little bit better than Blagoj Ivanov. Although the accolades are there. Blagoj was a great fighter with Bellator. Great fighter with World Series. So-so fighter in the UFC. So for Ivanov, he could land some of those big power shots that we know him for. But I just like the activity out of Tybora a little bit more. I just think Ivanov is the counter for a lot of what Tybora does well. Like, if Tybora is going to go for a wrestling-heavy game plan, well, Ivanov's pretty good defending takedown, especially up against the cage, especially with his upper body. On the outside, I do favor Tybora, but I do think there has been a significant regression in some of his striking. Like, even go back to the Greg Hardy fight. Yes, he TKOs him by ground and pound. He got lit up on the feet in the first round of that fight. Like, Greg Hardy was piecing Marcin Tybora up. He was a lot faster, and I could see Ivanov kind of getting Marcin Tybora to close the distance a little bit too fast and catching him with some shots, but I still think Tabor is the more well-rounded between these two guys. I think it is going to be a close matchup. It's probably not going to be the best fight to watch, if we're being completely honest, but I do have Marcin Tabora. Both of us going with the D-list nicknamed Marcin Tabora to get the win. Let us know down below in the comment section who you have in a battle of heavyweights, Tabora and Ivanov. Our next fight coming up, Da Jung taking on Devin Clark. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. For South Korea's Dao Eun Jung, he tasted defeat his last time out for the first time since 2015. The win streak is over 
and he takes on the former RFA light heavyweight champion, Brown Bear Devin Clark, a man who, in his last fight, got brutally beaten up by the professional, Azamat Mirzakhanov. And if you look at it for Devin Clark, you know him for his offensive wrestling. He can struggle definitely at some points of his fights. But for both of these guys, they very much have, like, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. High type performances in their careers. I mean, for Dalton Jung, you look at it in the UFC, he submits Khadis Ibrahimov, he goes out there and knocks out Mike Rodriguez, he has a split draw against Sam Alvey, he beats William Knight, and he beats Kennedy Zechiku. And let's just look at the two performances. William Knight, he out-wrestles him. Fight against Kenny and Zechiku, close the distance. They're both tall guys, right? We're going to hand fight, start landing some elbows, standing, knocks him out. And then his last time out against uh, Dustin Jacoby, Jacoby's bouncing on the outside. He lands a double jab right hand and completely drops down Jung, who kind of protested the stoppage when he got right back up. But he, he got up and then he started walking towards the fence. That's never a good sign. So good stoppage there. But for Dylan Jung, like even his fight against Sam Alvey, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, first two rounds... Sam Alvey outstrikes him. Third round, he drops Sam Alvey. There was a case Alvey won that fight. And I'm not even overplaying it. So for Jung, the best fighter that we see is a guy that can wrestle offensively, that can utilize really good boxing, maybe an inside low kick, decent takedown defense, good offensive wrestling. Like, Don Jung's a very well-rounded fighter. It's just a matter of which guy we get. And for Devin Clark, like... We saw him go out there two fights ago. He got a pretty good win against William Knight where he finished him. He That one was at heavyweight because Knight just had a hard time making light heavyweight. And Clark looked amazing. And then against Azamat Mirzakhanov, somewhat of a similar guy that can mix in his wrestling with his striking. Clark had zero answers. So another camp for Clark, not at Jackson Wink MMA, but at elevation. We'll see how that plays in if this fight goes a little bit longer into the third round. But for Clark, I'll be interested to see what we get because out of his striking, he's a very low-volume guy at range that likes to throw hammers to then close the distance to get the fight down to the mat. I do like his leg kicks when he stands all the way on the outside. It's a bit of an underutilized part of his game. If he threw a lot more, it would be nicer to see because one of the first things that stands out when you see Devin Clark, he has massive thighs. And when he throws his leg kicks, they're extremely damaging. But it's one of those things where they'll kind of float in and out of his volume to where you'll really notice them at some points then you won't notice them at all during others. Clark is fought the higher level of competition though it definitely throughout his UFC tenure but it'll be really interesting because Dylan Jung's one of these guys who the highs are very high but every time you really want to believe in him as a prospect he kind of gives you reason to have a little bit of pause like the Sam Alvey fight like you had said that was a very competitive back and forth fight and everybody going into that matchup had fully expected uh, Dylan Jung to full just run over Sam Alvey like that was not a prime Sam Alvey at any point and for Jung I, I like his striking but it is in a bit of a unique range because he is good at boxing he's good at that in close but a lot of his weapons are catered more towards that long range striking and that's why he finds himself almost kind of in this a uh, bit of a tweener he's like John Collins he's like a tweener between a forward and a center so for Don Jung, if he finds himself uh, over-wrestling, I think that could be a really bad thing in this fight because I don't think he's going to out-wrestle Devin Clark, especially not through five round, or through three rounds because Devin Clark has gotten ready for guys who are going to go out there and wrestle him a lot more than Don Jung normally would. So I do favor Clark with the wrestling. I just worry about his striking defense because every Devin Clark fight, he's got a bloody nose. He's got multiple teeth coming out. Yeah. Like There's always some kind of serious injury with Devin Clark in his face and I always worry about his striking defense. I 
like the totality of his game. He is a very well-rounded light heavyweight. It's just that he has such a big weakness with that striking defense that you wonder where, when it's going to give. Similar opponents for both these guys, Mike Rodriguez and, oh boy, William Knight. Both guys are able to get wins over those guys. But when you look at it, a matchup like this, Matt, it's kind of like that album that came out in 1984, Big Bam Boom. You're out of touch. I'm out of time. I, I think for the guy that loses this fight, I, I think it's it. Like, Dong Jung loses two fights in a row. Maybe they keep him around. Devin Clark loses two fights Clark in a row. Tough, yeah. I think they get rid of them Because, I mean, for Clark, he's 7-7. Seven and seven. He won the RFA belt. And then a couple of months later, he goes out and fights Alex Nicholson, a guy who looks like everything. Very red, very large, beard. Alex Nicholson went out there and knocked him out in the first round. And yes, you said it. Devin Clark's fought the higher level competition. His losses are to Nicholson, Blahovich, Rakic, Span. And then if you look at the last Anthony couple, Smith, yeah. Anthony Smith, Iwan Kutsilaba, and the professional, Azamat Mirzakhanov. For Jung, again, a tough loss to Dustin Jacoby, who I thought was able to go out there and win his last time. Uh, and the draw against Sam Alvey, it is tough. So you're out of touch, you're out of time. I I have a hard time trying to gauge both these guys. My picks are kind of all over the place when they fight, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. The odds in this one, Daun Jung is more than a 2-1 to one favorite in this fight, which is kind of weird. And we have a look at the top all you vote. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say the fans go with Jung anyway, because again, the highs are so high. Yeah. But the lows are very low. I'm going to say over, under 80% Jung. I think they'll be under. I think they're going to be under. They're over. 1,021 total votes. 89% Jung. 21% by decision. 70% by knockout. For the 11% that have Clark, 59% by decision. Matt, when Devin Clark fought Azamat Mirzakhanov, I remember vividly. This is my hipster pick. And I picked Devin Clark. And you picked Devin Clark. And everybody ragged on us for like weeks. And they're said, right too. I can't believe you guys. You're so stupid. Before the fight even happened. And then they really, really ragged on us. Your credibility's gone because you pick one fight wrong. I thought Devin Clark had that advantage, that motor. I thought elevation was going to help him. And he was a sitting duck for Merzak and Let's take the L every now and then. I thought Devin Clark was going to look great. He got destroyed his last time. Out yeah, and he looked amazing the fight before against oh, yeah, William the, Knight. But both of those things can be true. It's just like Merzakhanov really impressed me the last time out. But the same thing can be said for Dalian Jung. Like, he lost to Dustin Jacoby. He's a really good fighter in this weight class. He's very technical. has very heavy hands. So I even think with Jung, just because he lost to a good fighter his last time out, doesn't mean he completely discredited him. No. So in this matchup, Matt, I mean, for Dalian Jung, last time he was out there, he got finished. That was back in July, so plenty of time to get ready for this one. For Devin Clark, his last time out was back in August. So both guys with a lot of time to clear the cobwebs, kind of make right on the game plan. Again, I guess I go with the highs of highs, and I'll pick Dalton Jung to get the win. It would have been a hometown fight or somewhat close to home, representing Daegu out of South Korea. The card was supposed to be in Seoul, so I'll go with the man at a Korean top team in Dalton Jung. I like the boxing and the, the fact that he has good takedown defense. The only guy that was able to take him down was Hadis Ibrahimov, who went one of six on takedown attempts in that fight, and that's it. So I do like Jung in this one. We'll see how Clark's able to adjust with that motor in the wrestling. But again, the strike differential. Dung Jung, 4.05 to 3.81 for a plus 0.24 strikes absorbed to or landed to absorb. For Devin Clark, 2.94 to 2.86. That's below UFC average in both categories. But he doesn't throw a lot from outs from the outside. And sometimes when you can outstrike him on the outside, it really kind of dissuades him from going for the takedown. So if Jung's able to do that 
And I think he will. He'll be able to win this fight. I like Chung in the matchup, but this is one of those weird fights where Devin Clark could go out there and potentially out-wrestle him. I could see that being an option because Clark does have all that experience and that is going to pay off at a certain point. I think Chung is the much more damaging striker though. And like I said, we've seen Clark eat a lot of big shots on the inside and on the outside throughout his fight. So I do favor Chung, especially in this fight on the feet. Matt, assuming it'll be the scar tissue that I wish you saw for Dalton Chung landing those boxing combinations on Devin Clark. Both of us going with Chung to get the win. Big time matchup in the main event in the rebooking of Derek Lewis versus Moldova, Sergey Spivak. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's get into it. In the main event, coming up this weekend, UFC Fight Night Lewis versus Spivak. We have a couple of top-ranked heavyweights looking to battle it out. And with Sergey Spivak, he's looking to make it three wins in a row to move up towards that upper echelon of the division. Whereas for Derek Lewis, he's looking to avoid a third straight loss. A big-time matchup in this one. And for Lewis, I guess the story of the entire fight week is the fact that He's looking slim. He's trimmed down, getting ready for this matchup, maybe for one of the first times in his career. But of course, this is a card with the prelims that feature the road to the UFC. So make sure you check out those videos. The tournament championships are fighting handbook videos that are here on the channel. But we look at this fight map between Spivak, between Derek Lewis. Both these guys had a lot of success in the regional scene before they made it into the UFC. But for Derek Lewis, I mean, most knockouts in heavyweight history. Oh this is going to be his 10th UFC main event. Two of them were for titles. One against Cyril Gaon. One against Daniel Cormier. That one in New York. The one against Gaon in his native Texas. And Lewis has kind of struggled lately in Texas. So this is a good opportunity to reset. It's at the UFC Apex in Vegas. A card that was originally supposed to be in Seoul, South Korea. With the tournament championships from Road to UFC. With the fact that we have so many fighters representing Asia on this card. Only three Americans on the card in Lewis, Clark, and Adam Fugit. But you look at this one, Matt, and where Lewis is trending down and Sergey Spivak is trending upwards, and you look at the fighters that they faced, for Spivak, even his losses in the UFC, his last one was to Tom Aspinall, like kind of one of those title hopefuls. I know he got hurt in the fight against Curtis Blades and he's rehabbing his leg, but a loss to Tom Aspinall, a loss to Marcin Tybora, very similarly skilled type of guys, and a loss to Walt Harris that was really tough in his debut. The wins for Spivak, Tui Vasa, Felipe. I mean, Jalton Almeida wants him back in the UFC, but USADA, uh-uh-uh. Jared Vandera, Olenek, and the last two, Greg Hardy and Augusto Sakai. It's been a bit of a slow burn for Spivak, but nice to see him kind of getting this opportunity again in a main event slot. And this really is the big payoff, too, because for as impressive as Spivak has looked, you can't be completely sold on him based on the level of competition his last two opponents have been. Like, oh, you outgrappled Greg Hardy? Well, I would hope so. You mean bare-knuckle Greg Hardy? Uh, yeah. Uh, anyways. And Augusto Sakai. And his best years are well past him. So for Spivak, he has looked good lately, but this really is his big opportunity to prove himself against the elite of the elite in the division. And maybe Derek Lewis isn't even in the elite of the elite anymore, but he still carries that kind of a name and that kind of a brand behind him. So if you beat Derek Lewis, you're going to then fight guys in the top six, top seven in the division. But there's an old saying in Texas, no, it's a Tennessee rally in Texas, and it's fool me once, shame on, 
Fool me, can't get fooled again. I can't get fooled that Derek Lewis is this new fighter all of a sudden. Like, I think about Derek Lewis, and he had all these jokes when uh, James Harden was looking fat and skinny in Houston all the time. I think some similar camera tricks have been employed with Derek Lewis. I don't just think he became all of a sudden this thin and slim athlete at the age of almost 38 years old, because that's the thing. I know heavyweights can carry their power late. They don't hit their prime until later. Like, most of the good heavyweights in the division tend to be between kind of 34 and 40, and in other divisions, it's 28 to 34 if anything I just think with Lewis as much as I want to believe he's still that fighter who can hashtag just get up and land those big power shots I just don't think he has that ability to just a just get up off his back with that kind of explosiveness and I think on the feet he doesn't have the same level of aggression behind a lot of his strikes and I think that's the big thing that's holding him back because for better or for worse he was never the most technical striker but there was aggressiveness behind his strikes and there was purpose behind those strikes and I just don't know if there's that same mindset there anymore well and you look at Lewis, I mean, he made his UFC debut years ago against Guto Inocente back in 2014, or I guess it was Jack May in 2014. But you go through it, and you look at the guys that he's been able to beat that have similar type game plans. Shamil Durkimov out-wrestled him, and he came back and he knocked him out. You look at the fight that he had against Marcin Tybora, wrestled him, he was able to come back in that fight. He beat Blagoy even up by split decision. That was a bit of a stinker. He fought Curtis Blades, he knocked him out. He fought Alexei Olenek, he knocked him out. Similar game plans to what you'd expect from Sergei Spivak. And for Spivak... His best win in the UFC to me was the fight that he had against Alexei Olenek because he went out there and just landed hands on him like it was nobody's business. And he looked like K1, like Bangkok ready, like he was Jorge Gurgel, just landing strikes at will. So for Spivak in a matchup like this, I would expect, again, Extreme Couture, Eric Nixick and crew, the game plan to be... Will be the Sergey Spivak that fought Tai Tuivasa and just nullify the exactly. game plan, rinse and repeat, utilize your ground and pound. We've seen that out of Spivak in the past. And for Lewis, just get up, land uppercuts before he's able to close the distance. But that was the trouble for Lewis, even in the last couple of fights. You look at it against Tai Tuivasa, you look at it against Sergey Pavlovich. Those guys carry a ton of power and a ton of weight in this division. Pavlovich now more so than Tuivasa, but similar things that knocked out Derek Lewis, similar shots, and he struggled getting backed up in both of those fights to where we're backing, we're backing, we're backing. Against Tuivasa, it was we're back behind the black line, and Tuivasa is able to land elbows and strikes against him. If Spivak can blend those into his takedowns, again, more conducive to a Spivak win. I'm eager to see Sergey Spivak in a five-round atmosphere because we haven't seen him in and around fights like this since he was with WWFC fighting heavyweight legends like Tony Lopez. Tony Lopez, legend. And he does also have a win over a guy that's a really bad guy. But for Sergey Spivak, big opportunity. For Derek Lewis, a chance to get off the schneid. Spivak's a pretty big favorite. He's actually more of a favorite now than he was in the original matchup against Derek Lewis. He's about a 225. He's a minus 175. In the original pairing back in November, Lewis was out of that fight. Seemed like it was, what, like maybe wait. Complications. What you, okay, what do you think Derek Lewis is going to weigh in at? I think he's going to weigh in at right around the heavy. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. Around the okay, because I feel like there's some conversation out there to where, oh, what if Derek like Lewis weighs in? No, but like even 250, 255. Like I don't think we're ever going to see that. I think we're going to see over 260. Like going to cut weight to make the limit. I still think that's going to be the prediction for how big Derek Lewis is. Like I know some of those pictures make him look kind of slim, but James Harden proved this. It can make, you can make it look like you gained 30 pounds just like by wearing clothes, kind of baggy. So for Derek Lewis hopefully he has gotten into better shape because that would make for a better fight i just think we're going to see a completely new black beast all of a sudden big time opportunity for both of these guys we have a look at your votes yes your votes youtube community tab we throw them out there 
before the shows. 54% going with Spivak to get the win over Lewis. Over there in the comment section, first last saying this is Spivok's fight to lose. His grappling is very good. He can break you down in the clinch and push a pace. Bundle of humble. Derek is not exactly putting fear on his opponents anymore. And people have found ways to break him down or hurt him. Uh, Murnell is saying Derek looking lean for this one. Hope he gets the win. Bob Bob surprised by the community. Lewis generally does well against grapplers. And we'll go with Chris Wilson who's saying... Lewis been focused on fat loss and conditioning, it seems. Probably hasn't gotten much better besides a little faster. And maybe an extra few minutes in the gas tank, Spivok should win. So, listen, the voters, a, a fair bit of them, maybe 46% going with Lewis, 54% on Spivok. Topology, pretty close to Spivok, 60%, Lewis, 40%. We set it up in such a way, Matt. I mean, Lewis, we saw it against Curtis Blades. You just toss that uppercut out oh, you there. You make one mistake. You dissuade him from going for the takedown, knees up the middle. And we saw it, again, Spivok's last loss against Tom Aspinall. Aspinall walked him down and landed at will, and Spivok looked completely confused by it and had no effort in his defenses whatsoever. Lewis could definitely do that in this matchup. So what is your pick in this fight? Derek Lewis definitely has the skill set to go out there and get a win. Of course, he is one of the most heavy-handed fighters, really, we've ever seen in MMA. So, of course, he could go out there and land one of those big uppercuts, one of those big looping shots and get a knockout. I just think outside of that one very specific moment, Sergey Spivak's going to win most of the other minutes in this fight. And I think if he isn't, if he's able to not get finished before the end of the fight, he should be able to get a win. And if he is able to fight, like you said, use that tie to Ivasa game plan, get on top of Lewis, soften him up with the ground and pound, open him up for a submission that way. I think Spivak can have a lot of success if he uses a game plan like that. Well, it is such an interesting matchup, both of us going with Sergey Spivak in the fight, because if you consider it on this card, you have four fights in the tournament. We have it. Make sure you check out that playlist, the fighting handbook or the video on the playlist. We talk about it. It is the road to UFC tournament. This card was originally supposed to be in Seoul, South Korea. An injury to the Korean zombie forced him out. So they moved the entire card in December kind of covertly to Vegas. It's on very late. 10 p.m. Eastern is when the prelims start. 1 a.m. Eastern is when the main card starts. So... Make sure you look out for our show question mark kicks before the prelims kick off. Maybe it'll be more than two hours before because it is such a late yeah. card getting ready for this one. There's going to be all sorts of stuff coming out this week. The individual videos, the fighting handbook video, the main entire event video that you have right here. Make sure you toss a like. A subscription is definitely appreciated. And if you don't have time to watch the YouTube videos, we also have the podcast exactly. version. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all of those great things. At Craig Allen FMP, Twitter and Instagram, at Matt Allen FMP there as well. A big time week of fights. Hopefully you're all jacked up and excited about them. You're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it.